Welcome to episode number 12 of the Square Wave FM's podcast. Square Wave FM. Yeah, I got the name right. Cool. Uh, my <laughs> name is Brian. We're so, so glad to have you here today. With me, as always, is my beloved co-host. Chris, and uh, I am very, very happy to be here with both of you today because we have a special guest. Uh, would you please introduce Hi. yourself, sir? Hi, I'm uh, Amiya Radakago from the Netherlands. Yay, awesome to have you along welcome, with us. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, beautiful. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So we're going to talk about all kinds of good nerdly things today. I think on the on the agenda today we are going to talk a little bit about CD-ROM games if we can squeeze it in. Otherwise, the bulk uh, we may spend chatting about magazines, which is something I'm, fi- I'm fine talking about either. Okay, awesome. No doubt. Well, they're they're going to go hand in hand, I'm sure, because uh, one can yeah. be bundled with the other so often. Exactly. All right, but before we get down to that business, we have a few little twiggy do's that we that we got to talk about first, I suppose. Um, first of all, oh, I have a follow up on my on my harrowing situation last week of trying to get Windows 10 properly uh, oh, yeah. configured and everything. So, um, what happened uh, yeah. there? I think I mentioned last week that I tried to with the Windows 10 technical preview that I was trying to um, keep it on the slow track of updates yes. as opposed to the faster, unstable uh, updates. But uh, apparently, it's the same version uh, right now on both slow and fast, and it's a version that was a little right. problematic for me. And in fact, I think they've released yet another version this week. But uh, I just uh, bit the bullet and downgraded back to Windows 8. So uh, it's uh, it's totally stable wow, anyway. That's a pretty- yeah, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty big jump back to Windows 8. So there's there's no patches or hotfixes issued for the start button issue. <laughs> yeah, it's called Windows 10. <laughs> right, that's it. Uh, oh right, yeah, yeah. So um, oh right. So there was uh, there was sort of a hotfix for um, dialing backwards. I don't know. Yeah, it was just when I tried to downgrade that the start button stopped working right. in Windows 10. Um, right. So I think uh, my, my specific issue is that a couple of programs just refused to work, namely Civilization V and something else I can't remember now. Um, so they've, re- they've released another minor update now, which apparently includes whatever the next uh, Microsoft web browser is going to be. They're officially retiring okay. the Internet Explorer name, which You're is kidding quite me. incredible. I know. I guess they just want to burn that bridge and, and uh, keep on Wow. Working. Any idea if the... If the uh, new browser is still a descendant of Internet Explorer, or have they started from scratch? I think they're starting from scratch, and they're trying to integrate a whole bunch of new social things. Like you can, oh wow, you can scribble on top of it and share your scribbles. And I don't know what exactly. I think they're kind of trying to bring modern tablet uh, sensibilities to the web browser oh. and turn it more into like a lending library sort of a concept. Uh, I don't know exactly. Oh, that's interesting. I should give it a I, try. Um, hmm. Do you guys remember about two, well, three, must be must be almost five years ago now, when Microsoft announced that they were working on the Microsoft Courier tablet? Do you guys remember that? Oh yeah, that was, it was it was longer than, ago than that even, wasn't it? I've yeah, it was. No, it, oh, it was this work of art. I thought it was it was only a prototype, or I don't even know if they got to the prototyping stage. They might have just been in concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was basically. A, um, a notebook, uh, i got to be careful with my metaphors here, like a physical 
book notebook sized uh, device which had two panels on it one one kind of LCD panel on each page and you basically treated it a lot like a journal and it had this amazing UI. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, Brian, did you happen to see anything about the UI that it was uh, planning on using? No, just a device. I sort of remember it being like a overgrown Nintendo DS. Yeah, exactly. A Nintendo DS that, yeah, you can kind of turn in any direction. You can either have it as side-by-side uh, portrait or up-and-down landscape. And mm. the, the UI things just blew me away because it was really made with... Um, kind of physicality and interaction in mind. So little things like you could, if you came across something you liked on a page, like a little, I don't know, like let's say you came across a recipe that you thought you might want to use someday, instead of kind of copying, pasting into like a notepad document or something, you take your finger and you you just do a quick kind of swipe motion around it to circle it, and then you hold down, and that would basically clip it out of the page like, like it was like a pair of scissors. Oh, neat. And then... Yeah, and then you could seamlessly drag it, your finger, across from one tablet um, screen to the next one over and kind of just move and say, oh, I want to throw that in an, in an email or I want to throw that into, um, you know, uh, a sketchboard or I want to throw that. It was basically made so that no matter what kind of data you were working at, you could seamlessly move it around. It was just amazing. Well, that's kind of neat. I have a yeah. feeling, I've been reading a little bit about Microsoft's UI uh, style guide and the direction right. that they're trying to take. And they kind of took a look at what Apple was doing. I guess it was quite a while ago now, like when um, OS X, I guess the first like, yeah. point one, point two, uh major or minor uh, oh, updates God, came yeah. out. That was quite some time ago. Yeah. but. Around then, you know, that was the whole Apple brushed metal and, you know, the skeuomorphism, right. as it's called, when they tried to make the the user interfaces look like something in the physical world, just as like a right. visual metaphor. And they decided kind of at a moment's notice, Microsoft, to just go completely the other way and to say computers are computers. They're not real things. We're kind of That's evolved right. beyond now the time of... Uh, when computers should look like real things. Like you may recall, Windows XP looked like all Fisher-Price and bubbly and 3D <laughs> and rounded. And that was sort of the end of that. They kind of started going a little bit away from that with like the the transparent glass kind of a look in That's Windows right, 7. Yeah. And then by the time Windows 8 came around, it's all about uh, op- opacity and uh, squares, like very computer-looking yeah. things. that exactly. they just look like. Yeah, they have like hard lines, and they don't look like something from the real world at all. So I kind of have a feeling like that Courier tablet, they were kind of going along with the mechanisms where you're sort of approximating some real-world physical thing, and like That's with right. the copying and dragging and stuff like that, and they tried to kind of go the other way all of a sudden. Which is too bad, because yeah, it looked like an funny. awesome product. Exactly, and, and, and it's sad because um, with OSX, what happened was, yeah, they began with the skeuomorphic uh, concepts, and they played around with it a lot. Um, Akago, do you have a Mac, or are you a Windows guy? I'm a Windows guy. Always have been. Okay. Yeah, ditto. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been a Mac guy for a long time, um, but not, well, not comparatively long. I guess I came around, I came, I came, got into it when OSX first came out, and... Yeah, back then, the, even their hardware was designed to be skeuomorphic. For instance, the they call it the lampshade iMac. It looked like an oversized sunflower. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they had these uh, little eMacs, their little uh, desktop computer workstations. They were much more designed to be like a little TV that's that snugly in a box. It was they were they really did a lot to get away from the boxy computer thing. What it surprised me was when. When Microsoft went to the work, towards the Metro interface, which is you know the transparent, high transparency and all of that, um, 
I was surprised that Apple followed suit. So if you look at OS X these days, OS X is actually, I think the latest version is something like, uh, oh boy, um, I can't remember the name of the latest, Yosemite uh, possibly. I think um, so. Yeah, it's, it's almost identical to Metro. It's, it's actually kind of shocking to see just how much Apple's actually went in the, the, uh, the kind of interface metaphors that Microsoft ultimately went with. So, yeah. And Google's kind of doing yeah. something similar now, too, aren't we? Aren't we off-topic already, oh. starting with the bank? But, uh, <laughs> Google, uh, their, their latest interface they're calling Material, which is sort of halfway oh. between the skeuomorphism and the computery stuff. It's like sort of Metro Square-y style stuff. However, right. there's some depth to it where some elements are, are like higher than others, okay. you might say, if you're like looking at uh, a stack of things like from the top down, so that there right. isn't, you don't see any depth until you interact with them, and then there's some things that are on top of others, and so you can kind of oh. slide them away like pieces of paper. That's the kind of metaphor they're going for, and it's oh, a little hit and a little miss, but it's mostly pretty sensible. I kind of like that. Oh, oh, cool. That's a big step for Google, because you know, one of my big critiques of Google over the years is they've never really designed very useful or interesting uh, uh, interfaces for their stuff. It always feels like it's a, a Linux a kind of a hack together Linux project to me. Totally. And, this uh, is the first uh, this is the first Google UI that I thought was any good at all. Before that they were all hideous. Oh, that's cool. Do you guys uh do you guys remember Out of This World, the Peanut OS? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> From the intro. I, yeah, I I was just I was obsessed with that when I was a kid. I thought that's the future of computing right there is we need we need to have a green monochrome uh 3D interface and uh, then I'll be a happy human being. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, what I what I thought was going to be the future was from Jurassic Park, like the navigating the oh, uh, this file is a system Unix system. Space. I know this. Yes. <laughs> there you go. And in fact, that is an actual like X window. Uh, uh, oh, it uh, is shell for Linux. Yeah, for, oh. for Unix or for Linux anyway, where you can like fly through your file system like you're a, like you're a. a a I didn't know that was buildings. real. Yeah. Well, it's too cool. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, props to. Uh, Props to the to the people who made that uh, movie. Any any idea if that existed before or after Jurassic Park? I'm pretty sure it existed before. Wow, I'm blown away. I, I really when I saw that I thought, oh, this is just a lame uh, 3D mock-up. I know it it looks like it, which is even funnier. It's kind of even oh. more self-referential. That's unbelievable! Wow. <laughs> That's right. Michael Crichton, by the way, who wrote that book, his books are awesome because they're very touchy-feely yeah. and they have all these kind of screenshots and like samples of what the the uh, protagonists right. you're seeing, I love that about his books. It's just very tactile. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I, ran, uh, I read um, uh, Jurassic Park a couple of months ago, and uh, again, for the first time in 10 years, and I was like, wow, he went through the trouble of, of, um, of mocking up some actual, like, uh, believable UIs, and he actually shows them to you in the book. Yeah, I love that. I've never actually read the book. I've only seen the movie, but... Great it, book. Yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic book. Yeah, so I've heard. But, I uh, I'm, I'm looking at the IMDb trivia page for the movie right now, and it mentions uh, the park software is written in Pascal. A program is clearly visible in one of the monitor close-ups on the Unix system. The graphical interface recognized as a Unix system was the experimental Silicon Graphics 3D file system navigator. Ah. The oh. version number of the Silicon Graphics Unix operating system is 4.0.5 and is visible in one of the close-ups in the operating system's shell window command program. <laughs> That's go. wild. I when I was a when I was a kid, I just drooled over the idea of getting like an SGI O two or one of their other, you know, C 
supercomputer workstations. I just thought there's <laughs> when I, when I found out about Jurassic Park, I thought those were the craziest, coolest things I'd ever saw in uh, oh, in a yeah. movie. Well, the first time when I went to college, I'll say the first time I went to college because the fir- my first program was creative advertising, which I dropped out of like before my first semester was over. I, I hated it so much, <laughs> but yeah. it was at this great college location in downtown Toronto. The school was actually where they filmed Degrassi Junior High, so it was like this big Are square donut with this like oh, it was a beautiful school. It was so cool That's to be amazing. there. That's amazing. And it, this was where they had. Um, they had some studies about um, art and animation, and so instead of like Windows computers in the labs and stuff, they had silicon graphic indie, indie machines. Oh my Whoa. god! This indies? was like 1998. Oh, so cool. oh, they were beautiful. They're beautiful machines. This was about 1998, and the resolution on these screens was I forget like 3,000 by 2,000 or something, like very high wow. resolution. <laughs> and in the early days of the internet, where you know images were postage stamp size and videos were even smaller. That right. you had to like squint and use like a magnifying glass just to see <laughs> anything on these screens. They were they rendered so poorly on these high res screens, but they were really exciting oh, machines to use. That's amazing. What out of curiosity, were they black and white or were they full color? They were full color. I think they were wow. sixteen million colors. Oh my god, that's that's so ahead of its time. Yeah, I remember there was O twos mm-hmm. and Indies and there's one other line of uh SCI and I was just I would just see these things and just be like oh god I want one so bad mm-hmm. I uh, when I was in college around the same time actually sorry uh, this would be when when I was a kid sorry this was not when I was in college when I was when I was a kid my mom was in college and um, this is for our uh, hardware nerds out there you guys might appreciate this um, I, uh, I I would go to the computer lab with her and she would give me her key code uh, her uh, keypad code to sneak into the computer lab, and I knew I wasn't supposed to be in there, but, you know, these grad students and uh, undergrads, you know, kind of turned a blind eye to a 10-year-old kid sitting in the, uh, sitting in one of the workstation seats, but um, there was this, there were two computers that said, they, they were basically almost like wrapped with police tape around them. Uh, they said, uh, uh, you know, these computers only usable under special circumstances. You must get uh, permission from, you know, the university department chair before you touch them, and they were the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. Have you guys ever heard of a um, a Next workstation? Oh, yeah, the big black cube. Yeah, it, there were two Next workstations. And uh, oh. the, Next was the company that Bill, uh, Bill Gates, sorry, uh, Steve Jobs founded after he left Apple back in the uh, 80s. Oh, really? And Yeah. That's and what Doom was things, made on. You're kidding me. Wow, yeah, I didn't John know that. Yeah, had one, yeah. Huh. Oh, shit. They, they're, they're works of art, you know, just to look at them. And the thing that blew me away was, uh, well, it was two things. I was 10 years or 12 years old, something like that. So two things stood out, which was, one was the monitor was massive. It was a 17-inch monitor at a time when, you know, everyone was had 12 and 13-inch monitors at home. I, you know, I had a tiny little 13-inch BGA monitor, mm-hmm. and uh, or even smaller, possibly. I can't remember the exact size. It was very small. And the other thing that blew me away was the um, the OS was it was all in black and white, which I found very strange. Um, but it was super high res, and the fun thing for me was um, on the login screen. And this this is some trivia for any Mac users out there today. Um, the login screen had the regular old login screen, username, password. However, they had put some sort of skin on the OS. It was a Looney Tunes themed skin, huh. and if uh, 
it had uh, the wily e. coyote. His head was kind of wrapped around the login box, and um, what would happen is if you typed in the wrong uh, <laughs> you typed in the wrong password, wily e. coyote would shake the uh, the login box and make it look like he's kind of shaking his head. <laughs> and uh, kind of saying like, "No, you failed." You know, try oh, like it again. <laughs> it was so cute, and I was just as a kid, and I was just like, "Oh, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen." And I would tell my friends at school, "Yeah, I saw this computer, and it had Wiley e. Coyote on the screen," and nobody believed me. I, I, they thought I was full of shit. <laughs> so, I uh, what ended up happening was this is really wild. I never got to use it. I was so afraid of even touching it that I just stayed away from it and used the old three D sixes on the on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is this is like how you know strange uncanny coincidences. Um, uh, so I was ten, twenty years later, uh, twenty years later, probably down to the month. Um, it was fall, and I was looking in the local classified ads, and somebody mentioned that they were selling a next workstation, and I just about crapped my pants because I I knew yeah. they were they were they cost about ten thousand dollars when they first came out. Yeah. Um, and this guy was selling for seventy five bucks. Whoa! So, yeah. So I sped over to this guy's house, and I just said, "I'll take it. I don't. I don't care if it's scratched up or whatever. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it." So um, I don't know, Brian. Um, do you remember sending me a SCSI hard drive? Sending you a SCSI hard drive? Yeah. I don't know if you remember. You sent me. I'm pretty sure it was you. Ninety-six percent sure. About two years ago, you sent me an old SCSI hard drive you had laying around. Uh, that wasn't me. Are you sure? Oh man. Sure. I- I don't oh, think I've, so I've never had a SCSI drive. I've never had a SCSI oh, uh, controller. I don't. I. It's weird because somebody from Twitter sent it to me, and <laughs> I was sure it was you. That's so weird. So this machine was missing its hard drive, and um, I managed to. Yeah, I don't. Shit, I don't know who gave me a SCSI drive. Now that's so bizarre. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I always in my head was it was you that gave me the drive. So um, I booted it up and. It was just everything I could imagine. I'm like, wow, this is just like the one that I saw when I was a kid. That's so cool. And, you know, I got it running and stuff. And you wouldn't believe this. I open up the back of the machine, and I look at the, the, the there's like a tag back there. This is the exact machine that I was staring at when I was 10 years old. Whoa. It was, it's unbelievable. It was you, you one of U of A's, uh, only two, uh, one of their two, um, uh, uh, next workstations, and it still had the tag on it that said it was from the computing lab I was working in. That's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. I guess there weren't <laughs> awesome. a lot of those to go around. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of unbelievable. So I uh, <laughs> I, uh, I read there was a big sticker on it that said, oh, it came from this lab. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was the lab I went to as a kid. <laughs> so um, I, uh, yeah, so the funny thing about that story is just UI-wise, anybody who uses a Mac now, if you fail, if you log in, fail your login attempt, it still shakes the GUI window in the exact same manner that it did back in 1991. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Next OS is, or sorry, OS X is Next OS. It's the mm. exact same operating system. Wow, we. Yeah, I always yeah. love that actually about the, the shaking login window thing. That's fantastic if your sound is turned off or something. It's a very smart That's way right. to communicate. Yeah, it was a very, and it's a very simple kind of thing. And uh, the only thing is they stripped away Wiley e. Coyote. 
So anyway, sorry, I got it way off track there. I just thought that's uh, one of those weird little stories that comes out randomly. Yay, that was a yeah. good one. <laughs> I, can, I can't say I've had a lot of experience with ex- machines like that, but that sounds amazing. That must have been some real sci-fi stuff back then. Yeah, exactly. That was that was what I felt too, because I was still running uh, DOS 3.3 at that point, um, which is kind of nuts. That is a while ago, yeah. Well, this is just a beautiful machine. It was just like a huge black cube with a monitor, a big black monitor on top of it. It was like, I don't know, it was like twice as, as tall as like an ordinary uh, desktop computer, as yeah, I recall. exactly. I, I saw one of them at yeah. uh, Sid Bolton's uh, museum. The, uh, oh, you're History kidding me. He's got a cube. Museum. Yeah, I believe it's working as well. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's also gorgeous. Um, it's The whole thing is built out of magnesium, so it's... Hard to explain, but it's like extremely light uh, for its size, and um, and it's got this funny texture on it that I I have a hard time explaining. But it it feels nothing like a a regular PC. And I guess um, uh, Steve Jobs built a whole factory at the time just to manufacture these uh, 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 particular chassis for these ridiculous machines, which were quite. I think it was uh, at the time at the time I had an eight megahertz two eighty six. And, um, you know, I, uh, I think the machine was a, well, there, it, it was a risk-based processor, but I think it was around 25 or 30 megahertz. It was really, really highly powered. Hmm. Pretty sweet. Hello? Oh, Hello? there we go. Yep. Sorry, yep. we're just, Sorry. Uh, I lost you guys. <laughs> our, our jaws are gaping open with drool. <laughs> the same story I'm awesome. still here. I'm still here. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Yeah, That's so great. anyway, let me let me shut up. I think we've got some user feedback, don't, or uh, listener feedback, don't we? That we do. I, I don't mind calling them users. I enjoy being used. Um, yes, <laughs> going back to the Degrassi Junior High thing, I believe we just participated in what trolls would call digressing junior high. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I died wah, laughing wah. when I heard that. That was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking of our exceptionally good friend, trolls... Um, I know that, uh, Chris, you mentioned not having really played uh, The Seventh Guest, but uh, Emma, you're right. Have you played that game? I have not, but I have watched an LP of it. Uh, okay, that's probably gotcha. the wise choice. It's a very frustrating <laughs> game, but just the, spe- the spectacular splendor of watching the, the animated uh, uh, the animations and the walking through the, the mansion and stuff. That's what it's yeah. all about. Yeah. I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't have minded uh, trying it out for myself. But yeah, probably less frustrating that way, as you said. It was one of those games where it had a lot of word puzzles, but the words it used were like really advanced, really weird <laughs> words. Yeah, yeah. So like as an English shy gypsy, myself, yeah, shyly, shyly. Oh my gosh, I hate that. that <laughs> all the puzzles, they're, they're pretty damn annoying. Almost without <laughs> exception, they're almost all just really annoying like newspaper Mensa IQ test kind of Oh, I see. But uh, aside from the incredible, incredible graphics and the high-quality motion video, of course... And the the, music. The highlight is the music. And so uh, what Trolls mentioned in a tweet to me was that he wished, or maybe out to to the general public, was that he wished that on disc two of the seventh guest uh, CD, he wished that the Red Book audio file was split up into multiple tracks. So I guess I'll just Uh. refresh this quickly. I don't know. I mentioned to him... That's you know it's a it's so the on disc two 
I think I mentioned last week that this game was like 900 megabytes or something, which is just barely right. too big to fit onto one CD. And so on the second CD, they had one Red Book audio track where you could pop it into your CD player, and it was like half an hour of music or so, 25 minutes. And that was yeah. like five or six or seven songs or so, just one after the other, and kind of arranged nicely too. So that was my argument against Troll's comment. <laughs> that I love the way that they're arranged, and as short as it is, I didn't mind listening to it all in one go. How, how long? How long would you say it is, approximately? That music track? Yeah. I think it's 25 minutes or so, 24 oh. minutes, I think. Oh, wow, that's very respectable. And that's yeah. all. Uh, and it's all uh, by uh, the fat man himself? Yes, it is. Him, oh, and there's um, one song with vocals, and it's some lady, I don't know. It's very kind of a forlorn, grim, fandango, jazzy sort of a song. Yeah, um, the, skeletons oh. in my closet. Oh, yeah, right. The ending theme to the game. That's right. It's a yeah. beautiful song, I, actually. Very mm. 1930s sounding. Yeah, I think I heard that one. Uh, I was actually very surprised by the quality of it. I think, I think Francisco might have played it on Blue Cup Tools podcast at some point, or I might have actually heard it on uh, on a different, on possibly Joe's podcast. But yeah, an amazing track. Oh, yeah, it's a beauty. Oh, God, I, I still need to listen to Blue Cup Tools sometime. Oh, you sure oh, as heck do. Yeah. That's a terrific podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think that's that, what everyone uh, keeps uh, telling me. Of all the podcasts I've listened to in the last couple of years, it's easily, easily, easily in my top three. I, yeah. uh, I think Ben and Francisco. I think uh, if they're listening to this, one of the favorite, my favorite things about Blue Cup Tools is not only that they, you know, I, I, I love their commentary and their critique of of um, adventure game development and artwork and all of that kind of stuff, but my favorite part is listening to their friendship build over a period of three or four years. Um, huh. I, I, I came to Blue Cup Tools fairly late in the game. I think it was already out for maybe six months or a year. And uh, the first episode, you can hear two guys who know each other, but not, not perfectly. And just the level of, I don't know, the level of care and compassion and all of that stuff that comes with great friendships uh, they, they build over uh, each each season is just amazing and uh, makes me smile every time. Oh, that's neat. Oh, totally but, agree. But yeah, I already listened to so many different awesome uh, podcasts that come out on a regular schedule like this one. <laughs> oh, shucks. Yeah, I know. There's only so many hours in a day, I know. There's yeah, exactly. Really awesome but I'll, I'll uh, get around to it some the, sometime. Oh, yeah. Definitely recommend it. Great. Definitely, definitely. Absolutely. But uh, get, getting back to the seventh guest real quick... Uh, there actually was a soundtrack album that contained both music from the Seventh Guest and the Eleventh Hour. Oh yes, that's right. Oh. It's called Seven Eleven. Exactly. Oh, yeah. you're kidding me! I, in fact, I own that, and it is signed by the Grandmaster, the Fat Whoa. Man himself. Awesome. Is yeah, this one I, of the discs you sent off, to, mailed off to him for to get signed? He, I bought it from him. Um, oh, you was, bought it from him. Oh, yeah, cool. He has like a stack of them or something. I don't know. He has like some small inventory of them that uh, he can send out to people for a, a price. Or he does it through a distributor or something, I think, primarily. But he oh. also has a few copies on his own. So I just emailed him asking, nice. you know, I'd love to, I'm, I'm definitely buying your CD, but is there any chance you can sign it? He's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I just don't know what the shipping will be to Canada. I'm like, I'll give you like three times what it's worth. <laughs> I just want that. <laughs> and he sent me like this comic book and a sticker and a couple of other things, too. It was He has Whoa. a comic book about... It was oh. like the adventures of the Fat Man and Team Fat or something like that. <laughs> it's so cool. That's it's just amazing. this comic book that somebody made about him and his fellow musicians that write music for games. It is like the coolest. Oh, that's so that great. Awesome. You know, Brian, about uh, maybe a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, 
you had said to me, I came across this amazing book written by George Sanger, and I thought, oh, well, that's kind of weird. George Sanger's yes. not a writer. And oh, sure I, is. it took me a long time to find a copy, but I finally did. And it is just, it's amazing. I, I think the game is called Game Audio, but I, it's got a subtitle, and I can't remember. Oh, yeah, it's how, like Sonic Morsels of Audio, Morsels of Sonic uh, Goodness Sonic or Goodness. Yeah, oh, that's it's right. A great title. It's so silly. Yeah, and it's 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 amazing be, just because I love that you know George Sanger is writing this book obviously at a time in his life where he feels that you know he's he's now past his prime in some sense as a as a composer that he's no longer being paid attention to mm-hmm. um getting all the big contracts and he does it's it's almost like a little recipe book for how to live a good life um totally kind of it's it's amazing he just kind of says you know forget all that forget about your dreams of of becoming this rock star, forget this, forget your dreams about doing all this stuff. Try to, try to get, you know, he, he kind of really asks you to look, look inside of yourself for what you enjoy out of the process and love the process of, of, of making music. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's got a, a thousand little things like that in there. I just, I'm blown away by it. Yeah, I know. He's like a cowboy poet. Well, um, yeah. did you get a, a print copy of his book, by the way? I sure did. Oh, because when I was talking with him, I guess it was two or three years ago now, he expressed yep. great surprise that I that I owned a print copy. Apparently, they're really rare. So <laughs> I'm really took, happy to have it that. Took, it took me six months to find it. I was really, really excited when I found it. Oh, that's all. I, I, yeah, I, I think I lucked out. I got it for a birthday present, and my dad paid like 30 bucks or something. Yeah, really yeah, I think I paid 25, 30 bucks for it, and I was, just smi- I was all smiles when I got it in the mail, and I thought, this is one of the strangest books I've ever owned. <laughs> well, there's an excerpt of this book on his website. I'm totally going to link to this in the show notes. It is the most awesome, awesome story. It's called, like, The Fat Man Saves a Life at E3, or something like that. And oh, it's about, yeah. It's about how he gives some, some stranger... He's, like, talking to some people from, like, Creative or AdLib or something. And yeah. somebody's, like, cho- at, at E3, and somebody's, like, choking on their lunch, like, two tables down. That's right. So the fat oh, man's boy. like, hang on a sec. He, like, walks over, he gives this guy the Heimlich maneuver, he, like, <laughs> saves his life, and then he sits back down at the table. He's like, yeah, you were talking about audio chips? <laughs> it is a great story. Uh, oh, man, uh, that's so funny. I forgot about that story. It's it's oh, just amazing. And, and he said something, and he said something like, the fa- he said something like, I could have never imagined that, uh, you know, somebody, somebody would, took notice of that one little moment and all of a sudden that changed my whole life <laughs> i can believe it everything <laughs> i hear about this guy he just uh he just sounds really damn amazing he's a he great composer re- he's a hilarious guy there's um on the gdc vaults there is a, a talk from him from like i don't know 99 98 a long that's time right. ago yeah it's kind of crappy quality because that's how video rendering was back then but he's a really funny guy and super animated and very, very knowledgeable and just like a senior guy in video game audio, just in terms of who he's connected with and what he's worked on. He's He has, yeah. I don't know, 40 games under his belt or 50 games. Yeah. <laughs> and, he still, and he still can, seems so congenial every time I've ever seen him uh, talk or, or write anything. Oh, totally. He's going, he's, uh was recently interviewed for the Beep Game Audio documentary that I kickstarted a little oh. while ago. They, they posted a picture of him uh, a couple oh, of weeks awesome. ago, so I can't wait to, to watch that when it comes out. Oh, yeah. fantastic. I, um, uh, Akago, are you familiar with uh, any of George Sanger's other stuff? or uh, you, uh, Yeah, you I know he's done uh, He's done at the very least the uh, Wing Commander games, uh, oh, Zombies Ate yeah. My Neighbors on the SNES and Genesis. Mm-hmm. Oh! Oh, is I that on Genesis 2? Zombies Ate My Neighbors. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was a LucasArts game, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, one of the few console games that they made, as I recall. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you, yeah. you actually reminded me, uh, since we were on this uh, subject, uh, a couple of years ago, I, wa- I watched another interview with the Fat Man conducted by a guy uh, called Paul Dugan. I don't know if uh, either of you have ever heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was also uh, pretty interesting, as I recall. Uh, him Remind me, about- what, uh, what, what, what was Paul Dugan working on? Because I know I played something... Uh, Paul, du- Paul Dugan's a video producer. He did a Let's Play of King's Quest V over on That Guy with the Glasses, which is now known as Channel Awesome. And nowadays he does a lot of live streams of uh, adventure games. He's played the entire King- uh, Quest for Glory series. He's done a retrospective oh, okay. on King's Quest. Gotcha. Oh, that guy with the glasses. He's like the nostalgia critic, right? No, 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 no. Oh, that's just his network, wasn't it? I thought he was the guy. No, no, pa- Paul Dugan's just one of the guys who used to do videos on there. Oh, okay. He uh, he used to do a series on music called, uh, what was it, Full Circle, talking about all the different uh, music that he listened to and over the course of his life, which was also pretty interesting. Gotcha. Hmm, cool. But, but yeah, he uh, did an interview with the Fat Man a couple of, year- a couple of years ago. And oh. in it, the fat the fat man talks about you know what goes into the creative process of making a m- music for a video game, like uh, based on what the the producers you know ask of him, right? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I can't wait to see that someday. So it's a YouTube sure. interview. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on YouTube, uh, but I'll, I could Google around a little and. See if uh, yeah, I can find it. We'll have to link link that one in the show notes. That sounds great. I'm absolutely. I grew up uh, listening to a lot of Fat Man tracks before I even found out who the Fat Man was. Oh no, it's up on YouTube. So just search for oh, Paul Dugan interview Fat Man, and or hell, I'll uh, put the link in uh, Skype right now, and you can put it in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much. Shall do. Not a pro- problem. Awesome. All right, I've got one other item here before we can talk about what we played this week. Um, I want to say hello once again to my extremely good old friend, Bram, from high school, who is listening slowly but surely to our episodes. He said he's up to five or six or so now. And so he's been making little comments here and there about uh, things that are ancient history that I hardly remember saying. But one thing he wanted to (laughs) share was a list of – he listened recently to our episode with uh, Ben Chandler. Hi, Ben. Um, Hi. Where we were talking – we were talking about uh, some of the first games that we ever played. And so uh, Bram yeah. gives us a list. He, ju- he had just mentioned this list to me, but I thought there were so- some really good games here, so I just wanted to read them out. He's got about 20 oh, games sure. or so here. So he uh, was most influenced by the early games he played, including Rogue, Star Trek, uh, the ASCII-based Star Trek. Oh, we talk- wow. We talked about that one, didn't we? ASCII Star um, Trek? I, you know what? I Maybe in the very, very first episode or something like that... Um... Uh, possibly in connection to BBSs, but I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I I have some very fond memories of that one. Yeah, me too. That that was the game that later served as the basis for EGA Trek, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that's, so, yeah. That's what I remember, too. There were a whole bunch of different versions of that floating around in the uh, kind of early 90s shareware scene. Yeah, yeah a lot yeah, earlier I, than that, even. I think it was started it was, out as a mainframe game. It yeah. was. It was coded on a deck PDP, uh, PDP ten or something like that, back in I think seventy six, even oh seventy five. Wow, it's very so it's old. A real progenitor, yeah. Let's see what else we have. We have Dungeon Master. I feel terrible for not ah. having played this game. This is a really popular one. Me too. One. 
Me too. I had heard so much about Dungeon Master, and I remember there's this huge buildup over Dun- Dungeon Master 2, and then it came out when I was in high school, and it turned out it was a massive disappointment. So oh, really? I unfortunately, yeah, that kind of tainted my my willingness to play the series, and I think I really missed out because of that. I heard it's a good one. Emma, you're at. Did you ever play Dungeon Master? No. I, I never played a whole lot of RPGs, so... Okay. I don't remember whether this was an RPG. It might have been like a strategy one, I think, where you're like the dungeon boss and you have your little minions and you have to kill heroes that are coming to kill uh, you. That, sort of like I, a... I think that's Dungeon Keeper that's... you're thinking of. Oh, you're probably yeah, right. Dun- so dungeon dungeon I, I remember reading, I remember reading right. a review of Dungeon Master in a magazine once, with, and it looked like a basic uh, dungeon crawler to me. Uh, okay, yeah, you're right. I did was... confuse those. Yeah, it was a first-person style crawler that looks very much like I, the Beholder, uh, uh, late, became later on. Okay. All right, so next up we have, he mentions adventure and infogom, infocom games in general, text adventures. Wow. Oh, and he specifically mentions one called Dark Castle, which I believe you had mentioned, oh. Chris. Mm. Oh, man, he's, he's, he played Dark Castle. That's amazing. He did, and um, he... Oh, good, it wouldn't, be a, it wouldn't be an episode without a correction. He says that you had mentioned something about it being a side-scroller, when in fact you would go across from one screen at a time. It didn't... That's, that's correct. It didn't, didn't actually scroll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's he, funny. I forgot that every all of the action happens on one screen. So, yeah, thank you, Graham. Um, it all happens on one screen, but you can... It's... I don't know what to call it. It's, I guess you'd call it sort of like a platformer, but without scrolling. Um, okay. Kind of yeah, Donkey Kong style. sideways 2D view. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's kind of like Donkey Kong, you can kind of go up different levels of a room, but there's actually no scrolling involved in terms of the horizontal movement or vertical movement. Oh, okay, sort of like a load runner kind of a thing, where you're just on one exactly. screen at a time? Okay. Yeah, exactly, but with like the most amazing monochrome, uh, super, super high-res monochrome uh, graphics, which I just blow me away even to this day. Hmm. And, so he uh, also, wow, he, Graham's he also really played some classics. Oh, he has, Absolutely. Yeah, he he and I would play uh, computer games together all the time. Um, <laughs> cool. He mentions A10 Tank Killer. Did uh, oh, our, wow. our buddy Chris Olson mention this one in his conversation right. with us? I don't remember. I love this game. This is one of my favorite flight sims of all time. I didn't get to play A10 very much. Um, I knew about it through the uh, actually through the episode by um, our, our good friend. Um, uh, Joe Mastriani, because he does a great Flight Sims episode, and mm. A10, he, he was just the person who brought up the idea that this, this is a whole plane designed uh, to angle its gunfire so that it was always able to shoot at the ground, which, I, you know, kind of just blew my mind. Right. Right, the Vulcan yeah. cannon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. So let's see, he mentions Space Quest. Which uh-huh. I believe uh, we talked about a whole bunch of these uh, with uh, Francisco. Hi, Francisco. When we were talking about uh, Roberta Williams and other Sierra stuff, um, he mentions Wing Commander, which I don't know if we can go through an episode without mentioning Wing Commander somehow. I love that so so much. And I should probably mention at this point that I have never played a Wing Commander game in my life. Oh, you're kidding! Are you like? A, oh my! Are you into simulators or action? Combat I, I've games never been into simulators, but in recent years, I've kind of realized that I've missed out. So I'm really itching to uh, try out some of the more popular ones sometime. We talked yeah, about this I a little think... with Chris Olson saying that it's sort of hard to go back in time with simulators because we've come so far that sometimes they feel dated. 
Wing Commander is totally a rose-tinted glasses game. It's pretty yeah. punishing. I hope that you'll enjoy it because it's a great, great, great series that I well, loved enormously as a kid. Well, I should uh, I should say though I have played Privateer actually. Ah, uh, so oh, you already know yes, the score. We, yeah. Yes, I remember hearing your your scathing uh, <laughs> review of Privateer, which was not unfair. <laughs> Uh, and uh, on on Joe's podcast, and I thought, yeah, that's yeah. true. Privateer is a very punishing game that becomes unbelievably easy the second you get a Centurion. Um, right. But uh, at the same time, I think it's also, you know, it's kind of like that, I don't know what to call it, like the, the uh, black sheep in the Wing Commander universe, because uh, it it's, it's punishing in a way that Wing Commander 1 and 2 are not punishing. I think the only thing I can think of that's as close to as mean is Wing Commander 1 Secret Ops, uh, or Secret Missions. Um, oh, those are nasty. Oh, they were vicious, vicious missions. They were basically made to be unbeatable, in my view. Oh, I yeah. Did. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely enraged over Wing uh, over Privateer in uh, more than a couple of uh, moments, but I still had a lot of fun with that game regardless. Um, I would oh, say yeah. that the biggest hurdle to get over with Wing Commander is probably just the engine. Yeah, and, that's um, right. Like dealing with 2D ships in a 3D world. So if you're already familiar with that side, then it'll be no problem for you to get into Wing Commander. All right. Yeah, and I think the one thing you're going to get out of Wing Commander that you didn't really get in Privateer is it's got a really solid linear story. Um, mm-hmm. The story is straightforward. They don't don't keep you guessing anything like that. It's it's just fantastic, and I love I love Wing Commander one and two for that. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And starting from three, they brought in a whole lot of awesome actors as well, from what I've seen. That's oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> but uh, uh, not to de- derail the conversation too much. Mm-hmm. Oh no! Uh, Wing Commander Three brought in our good friend uh, Ginger Lynn. The uh, <laughs> <Ooh>. uh, <laughs> G- oh, Ginger Lynn. She was like the the. What, oh, she's the engineer she, or something, or she's like the repair. Yeah, I think she was woman. the lo- loadout. Uh, she did the weapons loadout specialist, and uh, she was a porn actress at the time, or she was maybe oh, trying to get out of porn. And, uh, yeah, she actually does a pretty serviceable job, um, <laughs> considering she's up against the heavies like uh, John Reese Davies and, uh, and uh, Luke Skywalker himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and I, I can't think... I, it's impossible now for me to think of Wing Commander and especially of uh, uh, the Fat Man without now thinking of Francisco enjoying the music so much. <laughs> <laughs> It's not great. It took me like you know a month to get that out of my head. It's going to be in my, my head in my month now. Oh, I mean, oh yeah. Now we now we have like the mental picture of uh, Francisco doing the hambone to this music. <laughs> yeah, the music for Privateer really gets stuck in your head as well. Oh, I know. Oh it yeah, is. it's the it's the launch music. You hear it so often. Da 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 da. I've actually got a <laughs> I've got a Wing Commander thing that I, a privateer thing actually this applies today I'll save it for our main topic yeah okay sure <laughs> alright I will quickly go through the rest of these then um, he mentions Populous Civilization Creative Contraptions which is one that I had brought up before the progenitor ah, yes. to uh, Incredible Machine hmm. um, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego love that game so much uh, Wolfenstein wow. 3D, love Ultima it. Underworld, Joust, All the Ultimas, and Lemmings. Lemmings, we haven't oh, talked about Lemmings. Man. Mm. Oh, man. Uh, he basically just hit on every single game I grew up with. It's a hell of a good list, I know. But Lemmings, I, uh, man, that's an infuriating uh, freaking game. I'm horrible <laughs> at that game. Terrible I was addicted to it as a kid. 
Addicted. I was addicted to blowing them up. That's it. <laughs> That's all I could do. I, I, I didn't play it a whole, well. I, I uh, played played it a fair amount. I never got very far with it, but I always loved it for whatever reason. It's so charming. Yeah. Yeah. The I music was, is excellent. I, yeah, I, and music's yeah, kind of unforgettable. And it's very goofy, very lighthearted, even though it's like a fairly dark premise to it. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. You, one thing, a specific memory I have about Lemmings was uh, when I was a kid. There was exactly one Macintosh in our school that had a color screen, and it was in the band teacher's office. And the band teacher was really, and she had it there because she used a MIDI orchestration uh, software on it. Um, geez, what's the name of it? It was a famous, uh, famous Mac composition uh, toolkit. Um, oh, Sibelius? Uh, yeah, something like that. And she something would, like you know, this. This was like a you know four thousand dollar computer that she had specifically for that one task. But of course, she didn't know how to do any of that stuff. Um, so what we would do is we would sneak into the band room at lunchtime, and the only game installed last well, year had two games installed on it. It had a game called Lunatic Fringe. Um, that sure sounds which, familiar. It was. Um, are you guys familiar with a game called Continuum? It's a space shooting game. Uh, another. Uh, no. Yeah, there were. There were about five or six... Uh, oh, I know, uh, a big... There was an online multiplayer version of this called... Oh, shit, it came out in 1998 or 99, and I think it's even still online today, called... Oh, uh, shit. Subspace? Uh, subspace, yeah, yeah, Subspace! Yeah, uh, I, I, was, I was just looking up continuing on movie games, and I saw that Continuum was an alternate title for Subspace. Yeah. Oh. oh, that's funny. Okay, oh, I didn't know that. Wait, no, it, it mentions Continuum was a freeware remake and continuation of Subspace. Oh, okay. okay. That that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was basically just a straight up game where you have thrusters, you can move, you can pull your ship in a certain direction and then you can shoot. Um, so you're you're you you've got no gravity effectively. Um, and sort you can like shoot asteroids. up a bunch of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like asteroids with a with a scrolling screen instead of a static one, and uh, uh, so we played the shit out of Lunatic Fringe on that computer. But when we gave up with that, we would. And oh, by the way, Brian, Lunatic Fringe was an After Dark module. Um, <laughs> really? So yeah, oh. it was a full fe- full featured game built into After Dark for Mac, which was just amazing. Oh wow! And uh, so we played that, and then when we got bored, we would switch over to Lemmings and play the living shit out of Lemmings on that machine. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh, I bet the like, music was great on Mac. It was. Oh, it was amazing. I think I just played it, was, it on PC speaker in, back then on on PC. Yeah, the PC speaker versions of they're very bleepy bloopy uh, for. I think. I think Lemmings was actually one of the very first games we played uh, after we got a Sound Blaster card, and hearing the ad lib oh, wow. music, that yeah, that Terrific, was huh? mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine. I, I think, if I'm not incorrect, I think it was a um, uh, Lemmings was a Psygnosis or Psygnosis game that was originally on the Amiga, yeah. and yes. yeah, yeah, it was pub- think... published by Psygnosis and developed by DMA Design. That's right. Oh, it went DMA, on to become right, Rockstar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot it was a DMA game. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, that's absolutely it. Um, I remember that I think it got an award, actually, for or some recognition of some kind for its particularly good ad-lib version of their uh, original Amiga soundtrack. Mm. The composer of it, yeah. He had kind of 
worked to get these free open source, uh, well, not free, uh, kind of Creative Commons. Oh, yeah, royalty uh, free on, stuff. Yeah, royalty free stuff because so that's why the game uses all these silly like War of 1812 marching band kind of songs because they're all just public domain. That's How right. Much even is here that comes the bride. The window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, they they put a lot of charm into that, and I, they absolutely. Um, I forget where DMA was from. It might have been like Dundee, Scotland, or something. They have like uh, yeah, a statue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Scottish uh, company. Right. They they have a statue of a lemming in like the somewhere in the city as thanks to that. Yeah, place. the recently oh, built. Awesome. I think it was. Yeah, I think five or six years ago, this local artist did a tribute to the DMA by putting this. I think it's a, a statue built around a water fountain. Actually, oh. um, it's actually oh, fairly wow. fairly big and impressive. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be. I, I, I'm looking it up on Google right now. It looks amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's like a bunch of lemmings crawling around a, a, a tower or something. I can't remember how it looks. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they're, that... they're they're climbing up the climbing up like a stone pillar. Uh, yes, we, we should totally put this in the show notes. Oh, you bet. Yeah, for the link, absolutely. Oh, DMA is just an incredible company. I I, I lo- kind of sad to see. Well, not sad, but just that that they kind of got into sequelitis and they got away from their original designs because their original designs were just mind-blowing. <laughs> that's very true. I know. that's a, It's a clearly such a talented, capable studio that w- became too popular for their own good and was yeah. forced kind of by publishers to make more and more yeah, sequels. And then, of course, the same thing with Grand Theft Auto, which they made later on. Exactly. And, you know, GTA 1, I was just talking about this with a friend, GTA 1 and 2 are two of the best driving games I've ever played just because... They really are about the driving, and okay, okay. You know what? I'm, I'm dropping it. I'm dropping it. I'm I'm getting I'm getting us way off topic. We're an hour in. Okay, sure. Well, um, <laughs> if you want to hear more about uh, how DMA Studios was founded, by the way, there's a great book called Jacked, which is by oh David Kushner, who made the uh, oh. Masters of Doom book as well. So his, oh. you're kidding me. His book is about the origins of Rockstar and DMA Studios and the origin of um, violent games and of Grand Theft Auto and then how Jack Thompson, uh, the uh, (laughs) super self-righteous dick of a politician (laughs) and lawyer in uh, America, uh, became like their public enemy number one. Yeah, Yeah. oh my god, I didn't realize he said that book existed. Yeah, it's a good book. It's not quite as good as Masters of Doom. I totally recommend that one first. But it's quite fair in... uh, in giving praises to Rockstar where they belong and also to kind of taking them to task for not sticking up for the medium as like a wow. legitimate uh, a legitimate form of uh, satire to uh, oh, do wow. crazy things. Wow. Yeah, good oh, book. He's wait. a great writer. Well, I'm he definitely is. adding that to my to-read list along with Masters of Doom, which I still haven't oh, yeah. read either. Oh, that's such a, such a good book. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So Anatoly keeps telling me. Yeah, and and if you... If you you know, for any of our listeners who, because uh, we have a fairly international audience, uh, any listeners who aren't so interested in reading the book, the uh, podcast version of it, the, sorry, the audio bo- audiobook version of it is actually very, very well voiced by Will Wheaton. That's right, it is, hmm. and uh, it's definitely worth a listen on its own. I loved it. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We've somehow made it through our pre-show preamble. Um, <laughs> not a moment Ami- too soon. Not a moment too soon. Well, Amirat, <laughs> we would love to hear before we get into our topic, what have you played this week? This week? Ooh, well, or lately. Well, okay, just lately. Uh, let's see here. Well, the most recent thing that I've completed was Resident Evil 2 on the ah. PlayStation 3, which I got off PSN quite right. a while ago, but... 
I'd never actually played it, so I figured uh, it was about time. Oh, yeah, that's like survival horror, kind of like Alone in the Dark style presentation, yeah, 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 isn't yeah. it? Right. Yeah. I, I, I horrible played, tank controls, right? Yeah. I oh, had played so the uh, the first one, uh, both the original and the remake for the GameCube, but the second one uh, actually is a pretty damn good game in its own right. Oh, what do you Uh-oh. like about it? Uh, well, f- for one thing, uh, what I liked about the first game is that you kind of gradually explore this massive uh, location. In the first game, it was a mansion. In the second game, you start in a police station and gradually move your way to different locations. Gotcha. But you uh, gradually explore it room by room, and you fight zombies and other monsters and collect items and weapons and ammunition and keys, which you use to open doors to new rooms. Right. And you solve all these different puzzles using the items that you find. So it's similar to Alone in the Dark in many ways, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah Alone, in the, Alone does... in the Dark was pretty much the whole progenitor to the whole uh, to the whole Resident Evil formula in a way. Okay, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't Re- Resident Evil was a Japanese uh, developed game? Yeah, uh, yeah, Capcom, by Capcom. Possibly? Yeah, yeah. And, well, well, uh, yeah, the one thing I find interesting about that series is it, it is like Alone in the Dark, but it's also different in some ways, because the Japanese have some very specific kinds of, I don't know what to say, uh, a kind of flavor that goes into those series. Yeah, yeah. But what's uh, what's actually really cool about Resident Evil, the first two games uh, especially, is that you can choose which character to play as, which is another thing I guess they carried over from Alone in the Dark, where you oh. can... Or you could play as either oh, yeah. the uh, the female character or the uh, male character. Well, that's oh, nice. I didn't know that. I always thought the female character was the default in all the games. So I didn't realize that. No. But, wow. Whereas in, in Resident Evil 1, it just affected kind of... Well, uh, each character had their own scenario with own events and uh, things like that and their own endings. But in Resident Evil 2... Uh, you start the game with one character, and once you finish that, you can play through the entire game again with a different character. You get a completely different scenario than if you'd started with that character. You're kidding me. Mm, that's great. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. And it, it's, it's meant to kind of reflect you know, showing you know each character's side of the story, what uh, each character is doing while the other is off doing their own thing. But it doesn't really right. gel together perfectly because you still have to collect every single key that you did in the first scenario to open every single door that you did in the first scenario right. but it's it still comes together in a pretty clever way and once you finish the second scenario then you get the true ending and the final boss and see uh, how everything comes together wow that's a lot of replay value for such an old game that's quite impressive yeah and uh how it works well uh well, yeah. So basically, that means uh, you have two different paths to follow depending on which character you start with. And one really cool thing that I unfortunately kind of missed was the in the first scenario that you play near the end of the game, there is a door which is locked with a handprint scanner, which requires two people to open. Right. Mm-hmm. But since you're on your own, you can only enter in one fingerprint, a handprint, and then you kind of have to saunter off and uh, just get on with the rest of the game. But once right. you get to the second scenario, you find that the first handprint has already been entered because you did that in the first uh, route. So now you can enter in the gotcha. second handprint and finally open the door. Oh, that's rewarding. Oh, that's wild. But from what I read, what's in there is actually not that special, but it kind of hints at what ha- what's coming in the uh, the third game, which I haven't played yet, but I already know what that is because internet. Right, oh, of course. Okay. Right. 
so, oh, that's pretty so it's cool. basically kind of just a nice little gift to the people who are willing to stick it out in, through both scenarios. Yeah. That's very cool. I like it. Yeah. I only tried Resident Evil 4 pretty briefly. I first oh. played it on GameCube when we briefly had a GameCube. We bought a little used GameCube, and my wife, my girlfriend at the time, had this, I don't know, it was like a... a, a 12-inch black and white... No, it wasn't black and white. It was just a 12-inch, really crappy, fuzzy, poor resolution, poor reception TV. Oh. And <laughs> playing a horror game on a, on a, a, a TV with bad reception is so scary. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's so it's much terrifying. more convincing that way. I know, that is a gory game. Yeah. Oh, oh the I, deaths it, and it, stuff it, are funny. awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a shame you didn't uh, stick with it, though, because Resident Evil 4 is, in my opinion, probably the best game in the entire series. There's a lot wow. of things that I liked about it. However, like uh, Chris was saying, there are a lot of like Japanese sort of style things to it that I really didn't like. Like <laughs> the like having to play Tetris with your inventory. I hate that to try to make something fit. <laughs> and like, oh, you're being chased by four zombie guys, but well, uh, you can press the start button to pause everything while you mix plants together, and you well, like a, a whole it... raw egg if you want to heal. It, it was I actually it was actually a lot worse in the early games because there you just had a limited number of inventory slots and once you filled up all your slots you had to run to an item box to kind of dump everything that you didn't need so you could free up some inventory space for more items and depending on right. which character you picked you actually would have uh, had less uh, inventory spaces if you picked the male character. Oh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow, interesting. That is interesting. At least in the first game, if you picked Chris, you had six inventory spaces. If you picked Jill, you had eight. And Jill wow. also had the advantage that uh, she had a lockpick, which could which she could use to open certain locks, whereas Chris had to collect uh, right. certain small keys to open those locks, which took up, huh. which meant you spend even more time running around between invent, uh, item boxes, dumping right. items you wouldn't <laughs> need. Right. Wow. So yeah, so I didn't get into it because of like eating raw eggs to heal and like sometimes you'd be fighting <laughs> zombies but you'd notice this little twinkle above you and like hanging from a tree branch there would be a necklace and you're supposed to shoot the necklace and you get bonus points or something. It was like a weird combination of realism and like surreal arcade stuff. Yeah, um, well, well, maybe, yeah but... Japanese sur surrealism is the best way I would describe uh, a lot of the horror games. Which is charming on its own, but there's this great saying, I forget where I heard it, it might have been on the One Up show, um, it's a Japanese saying, uh, which is Yoge Kusoge, which translates to Western Game Shit Game, <laughs> which means that a lot of Japanese people like the uh, tropes that they've established in the Japanese design, Yeah, they don't like the American games for taking another, I like route, it. another route. That's great. It's a good saying. J Japanese are very particular about their own uh, kind of tropes, that is true, but... Nonetheless, uh, Resident Evil 4 does it. It um, how do I put this? It 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 refines a lot of the stuff that may well. Well, actually, it is a massive departure from the earlier games in a lot of ways because it's the first game that have be in full 3D for one. It, it doesn't have the uh, pre-rendered backgrounds and static camera angles instead it plays more like right. a traditional third person shooter but it refines it to such a degree that it actually controls really well it okay it it, it, it has massive amounts of uh, secrets and unlockables as well awesome mm -hmm. so it, it, it's uh, it's definitely worth a look is what I'm trying to say <laughs> oh I, I do agree 
I do agree. I, I have my own hang-ups about the genre, but... Uh, yeah, I can, I can it, understand there's that. There's a lot of good stuff to it. So my wife my wife and I recently bought Resident Evil 5, because there was some Steam oh. sale for uh, co-op games. That's a game you can play co-op, and we haven't gotten yeah. around to starting well, it yet. Well, that, 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 that game is probably best played in co-op, uh, because if you play it single-player, you're going to really hate the AI partner. That's kind of what I uh, assumed. Yeah. So I'd, I'd rather play in a, a game like that with my wife, but I uh, convince her to... But that that aside, it's not a bad game, but a lot of people agree that it's kind of a watered-down Resident Evil 4. Uh, hmm. still, well, even still, that, I'm sure, is pretty darn good. Because that yeah. game, number four, had just had such awesome presentation, and mm. like you really feel like you're being chased and stalked, and just how gory it is and how realistic yeah. it looks yeah, yeah. is a real motivator to stay alive. Res- Resident Evil 5 is probably uh, a lot of fun to play in co-op, but uh, playing it myself, I felt, I felt it... It was kind of a shallow retread of a lot of the stuff that made RE4 great, so... Uh, well, I'll let you know. Sure. But, uh, yeah, getting back to the uh, other games that I've been playing, uh, the other thing that I've primarily been playing lately was Half-Life 2 Update. Oh, what oh. do you think of that one? Uh, it's hard to say, because, okay, for, uh, what Half-Life 2 Update is, it's basically a fan-made mod for the original Half-Life 2 that apparently updates a lot of the uh, the lighting engine and particle effects and right few few uh, bugs and glitches here and there, but which I haven't really noticed a whole lot of to be honest. But the main reason that I've been playing it is for the brand new community uh, commentary, which includes a lot of people like uh, Cat Icarus, Brutal Moose, uh, Rice Pirate, who I'm personally not familiar with, and uh, probably. <clears throat> Probably one of my favorites, uh, Ross Scott from Freeman's Mind. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. So they is it sort of like the uh, developer commentary where you'll yeah. come across a node and yeah. you'll play yeah, a yeah. little blurb? Exa- exactly like that. And okay. They, so uh, do the, the community do they have things to say that the developers don't? Yeah, yeah. They uh, sprinkle in a lot of interesting uh, development details and trivia, hmm. which is uh, fun to wow. listen to. The, the Although, uh, Little Norwegians, uh, my my friend, Little Norwegians, uh, pointed this out. They do seem a bit self-congratulatory about the game sometimes, but nevertheless, uh, you know, Half-Life 2, it definitely deserves uh, a lot of praise. Oh, sure. I because, really Because love it, it definitely was a groundbreaking game uh, when, it, when it came out, and it still is a lot of fun to play through. I think so, too. So what do you think, then, of the... Uh updated lighting engine and particles and all well, that kind well, of that, stuff, because that, that kind of raises red flags for me. Well, that that's the thing. I haven't really noticed a whole lot of difference in that regard. Maybe it's just because uh, I haven't played Half-Life 2 in a whole lot. I don't remember exactly how it looked back then. Sounds like they took a very light touch to it. Yeah, probably. I hope so. I don't really notice a whole lot of improvements in uh, that regard, and the character models and everything still look the same. They still They still look pretty good, of course. They looked good back then, but you know, you definitely can tell that the game has aged a bit in certain uh, aspects. Oh, yeah. There was a... But, I tried once this um, texture and, I don't know, some kind of graphic overhaul by a guy named Fake Factory. Okay. This must have been like five years ago or so, and he did not have a light touch whatsoever. The textures <laughs> were really different, and the lighting was really different, and it really changes the feel the the feel oh. of the game and like it undermines the the like visual integrity of the game. So uh, I, I yeah, because no, that game no. was that was that game, whole game was designed with a very very specific kind of look in mind. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember mm-hmm. the name of the 
the visual designer who is kind of kind of in charge of many of the uh, important levels. Uh, I think Francisco mentioned this on one of the BCT episodes, but um, oh, I he, forget his he, name. He did Dishonored later as well. That's mm. right, exactly. And and I can't imagine uh, anybody messing with his <laughs> original work, making it look better. To be honest, yeah. I uh, know, but the up- the update leaves the uh, original look of the game intact. As I said, that's I great. haven't noticed a whole lot of difference, so they didn't mess around with it too much. Great. Well, that's good. That's a game that I replay pretty much every year, sometimes yeah. more often than that. <laughs> yeah, and, I, um, I, I figured uh, with the update coming out, it was as good an excuse to replay the game again, and it's still a hell of a lot of fun. You know, um, right now I'm about halfway through the game. I just got out of Ravenholm, and I'm at the part where you get to drive the car around, and mm-hmm. <laughs> that's still that's still a hell of a lot of fun. Just uh, running over ant lions and combine soldiers, and before that, Ravenholm is still pretty damn chilling. <laughs> oh, it sure is. But that part with the cars that was always so striking for me. That was like part of this like world building storytelling where you're driving this car through these like kind of desert sort of areas. Yeah, it's like the coast. Beaches, yeah, the coast. But the coast yeah. is totally receded, so there's all these, like, skeletons of ships all over yeah. the yeah, place. I love that. Yeah. I love the water that. level has gone down. You're asking yourself, yeah. oh, why is that happening? And they never tell you. It just is something that they yeah. have. It's like... Yeah, it, it's it's, it's it. partially because they caught a lot of content from the final product. Originally, they were going to explain that the combine was draining a lot of the oceans. They were oh, replacing okay. Earth's atmosphere with their own, but... They cut, cut a lot of those explanations, and they kind of left it to, for the player to find out themselves. It's kind of stronger cool. without the explanations. Yeah. It's just great to ask yourself these questions. It's very mature, it seems. <laughs> Love that. Amazing. Oh, well, enjoy playing the rest of that one, then. There's a lot of really great content. Oh, I, you're coming up to when you get to control the ant lions with your mm. your super pheromones and all this good stuff. Oh, I'm talking myself into playing that game now. <laughs> I love that game. Love it. Yeah, and of course we're still waiting for Half-Life 3 or Half-Life 2 Episode 3, whatever it's going to be in the end, but uh, we'll oh, see right. We'll see it when it happens, I suppose. Oh yeah, Gabe Newell made a comment yeah. on that recently. Did you see anything about that, Emma? Uh, not really. Or Chris. Oh, so what he said was that the way Valve does their, their development now is that they basically have no overall direction or structure really it's just a whole bunch of equals and if you can convince other people to work on your project then that's what's going to happen and so far nobody has really been that interested to do this game that's going to take like 200 people worth of effort Mm. so they're they're doing all these little experimental things now that's it champion it and lead it and have people stick to it and it's a huge ordeal to make a a big linear story-based game i think they're burnt out on that so it might be quite yeah. some time until we see half-life that's 3 un- sadly unfortunately uh. that's become the uh that's really become the the structure that valve operates under for good or for bad so yeah it, well, it doesn't sound like a bad philosophy but it's you know it, uh, in half-life yeah. in half-life half-life's case it's kind of especially painful because of how the last episode ended on a fucking cliffhanger. And we've, we've it's been so many years, we still haven't seen it resolved, so... I know. It really is. It really is. I mean, on one hand, you want developers to work on something that they believe in and they love. Oh, yeah. But on the other, I want them to make something I love. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> multiplayer stuff. No, nevertheless, I can't say a bad word about Valve, because they've made some amazing stuff in the past few years uh, with, with Portal and everything. Oh, yeah. Gabe Newell is a real hero of mine. I think he's an incredible guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, so Half-Life 2. Wow, great. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Is there anything else you've been playing, or is that your list? 
uh, pretty much everything I've been playing as of late, I, and I've been going on for long enough anyway, so... <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris, how about you? You been playing anything this week? Yeah. Um, uh, my girlfriend and I started off um, for the PS1, actually. We've been playing the original Silent Hill. Oh. Um, that's kind of, yeah, turning the clocks back quite a while. Um, not normally uh, a game I was too interested in. To be honest, I'm like scared shitless of playing uh, horror games. So <laughs> I, I used I, to feel I that don't... same way, too, but, you know, uh, I dabbled a little and... <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I thought well, sometimes real life scarier than uh, than than stuff in uh, than in games. So I thought, oh, I, I can I can handle this now at this point in my life. <laughs> sure, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I uh, yeah, we grabbed Silent Hill, the original, and um, I actually no, I have to before I tell that story, I have actually one really funny one. We finished Broken Sword as I mentioned last week, so we said okay, oh, yeah. well. Let's 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 play Broken Sword too. Let's uh, we want to play that. Um, and I just happened to have a Broken Sword two copy for my PS one, um, which nice. was great. Um, and I found it years and years and years ago. I think for like for a dollar at EB Games, and wow. I just snagged it. And I thought, oh, you know, that's fantastic. And I never once tried it out. We were so excited to play the second installment of Broken Sword, even though I talked crap about it for months. Um, <laughs> that we put it in and the damn thing didn't boot. Oh. And, yeah. And I was just like, oh, crap. And then I, so I thought, okay, that's really weird. Maybe it's just a problem with my PlayStation. And I tried a different game and it worked fine. And then I, so I, I, I took it out and this is the strangest thing I've ever seen. I, to this day, I don't know. Have you guys ever bought in bootleg discs? Uh, no. For PS1? Oh, yeah. I have a friend who used a boot disc or something, or there was a trick to playing pirated games yeah, where you have you to like, hold down swap. a button or something. Yeah, you can yeah. do the disc swap, right? There you well, go. I think I, I I was just handling this disc, and I pulled out the little um, the little j- CD jackets, and I think that this might have been like a Chinese uh, bootleg that was actually like printed in a factory, but nonetheless is a bootleg of the real thing. The 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 disc jacket is blurry. It doesn't. Um, mm. It doesn't look like it was printed with a professional uh, printing machine. Um, mm. The actual artwork on the disc look doesn't look ultra professional. It looks like somebody kind of took the the front of the box and kind of just pasted it over top of the CD. Mm. Um, and I suspect that this bootleg actually doesn't have the proper boot code on it to work in a real PlayStation, um, or maybe a North American one. Or North American one, exactly. Like I can't really figure this out. There's it, it, the funny thing is there's no Sony logo anywhere on the disc. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the strangest thing. So we couldn't play that. So we, we I begrudgingly switched over to Silent Hill. And the crazy thing is we were pleasantly surprised. I didn't expect much out of Silent Hill um, mm. because it kind of hits two two trouble spots for me. A, it's a, a like a Japanese developed. Uh, a horror game, which means that it's going to have a lot of those Japanese tropes in it that don't work so well for me, um, you know, or I was expecting that. And B, of course, um, it's an ancient um, uh, uh, PS1 game. Even for the PS1, it's old. And uh, it shows. It, everything is built in about 25 polygons. And everything And there's is fog everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's what, sorry? Fog. 
Yeah, there's fog. Exactly. It's fog. And the worst part is it's not even properly shaded fog. It's fog that's been shaded using a dithering algorithm that they apply to the entire screen. Oh, um, uh, yeah. I don't know how to describe that. It's a, it's a very PS1 sort of thing to do. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, fake uh, fog. Yeah, exactly. And it just doesn't look good visually. But the crazy thing is we got we the game pulled us in about 15 minutes in, and I thought, oh, man, this is actually very eerie and very creepy. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's definitely got a very uh, unique atmosphere to it. Yeah, I, I've actually it, played that game to death. I've uh, gotten all the different <laughs> endings uh, for it. Oh, fantastic! It's it's just I'm very impressed by it. Uh, there's many things I could go on that I hate. I mean, I'm famous for I really hate puzzles that basically mean you're you get to unlock a door, and that's the entire game is just unlocking a series of doors. But at the same time they do a really good job of kind of sticking in fun little puzzles that actually make sense. Um, yeah. The pu- that, that's a, not- actually one uh, one edge that Silent Hill has over Resident Evil. It has some very elaborate puzzles at times, i found. Yeah, yeah. And the puzzles are, for the most part, not full of moon logic. There was one piano puzzle that was absolutely ridiculous. But, <laughs> oh, um, God, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, my girlfriend looked up the... Uh, uh, a walkthrough for that, and we we kind of agreed after fussing with it for 25 minutes that there was no way we were going to figure this out. And sure enough, as soon as we saw the solution, I was like, "Yep, there's no way we would have figured that out." <laughs> I think I actually figured that out on my own, but don't ask me how. Really? Wow! It was uh, it, the, the puzzle involves um, having to transcribe musical notes from a poem on a chalkboard. And yeah, about the, black and white birds. That's right, and the black and white birds actually um, turn out to be representations of the black and white keys on the keyboard. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, going by the it's, poem, it's a, you have to figure out in which order to hit the keys. And exactly. You, know, you notice there's only a couple of keys on the keyboard that don't make any sound. That those are the ones you have to hit. Yeah, and we got it backwards. We were we thought you'd have to hit the board, the, the keys on the keyboard that did make sound. So yeah. we kind of got it all backwards. We we basically had the right idea, but the wrong execution. So Silent Hill is really really good. I'm 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 surprised. The one thing it's gotten going for me that very few games have is I'm genuinely curious about the story. I'm genuinely cur- curious what happened to this man's daughter. And uh, yeah, that, not a lot that's of games actually... like. Oh, sorry. Go on. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's not a lot of games actually get me to that point where I actually care enough about the character or the story to want to keep mushing on. Yeah, but that's actually one of the things that I didn't like about the first game because the story oh. is exceptionally vague. Like, even completing yes, all the different endings, I still had no idea what the fuck was going on. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that's, that's definitely a... Japanese horror theme thing is they don't give yeah, you a lot that, of explanation. But then you get to the Silent Hill 3. Basically, that entire game's purpose was to explain the story of the first game. Ah. Oh, I see. Okay. And and even then, getting to all the different endings, figuring out how to trigger them is a real pain in the ass. I had to use a walkthrough for it because there are a lot of things you can easily miss the first time through and you don't know what you're supposed to do with them and you have to Right. Uh, do some really weird things that you wouldn't know to do. So. Okay. Well, we're not there yet, but I I suspect 
I suspect we're going to get to the end and say, well, we're not going to explore the other endings. We're just going to say we're satisfied with what we got. It was uh, <laughs> it was an interesting experience. <laughs> well, l- let me know what ending you get later because uh, yeah, absolutely. There, there are some interesting ones. Let's just keep it at cool. that. But uh, um, once, I haven't. Once, been... Sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead. But uh, once you're done with that, I actually highly, highly recommend you play the second game as well if you like the first one. Because the second game, it doesn't follow up on the first game, but it has a very, very good uh, character-driven, a very emotional storyline. Oh, okay, great. I uh, yeah, I, I'm, these characters are not developed in any meaningful way, and the the, sto- the story is not the best I've ever read. But you know, it does a, it does the bare minimums I need to keep me going in 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 a game, and you know, compared to five or ten other adventure games that I've actually just kind of stopped playing because they, they're not pulling me forward. I think yeah. Silent Hill's actually pulling us forward, which I think is, uh, that's high marks for a game released in, what, probably 95, 96 for the PS1? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But that's good. really, the difference between Silent Hill 1 and 2 is light and day. Oh, wow. Hmm. Cool. Uh, night, so, night and day. I said light and... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bigger difference. All no, right, Silent yeah, Hill, so... The Silent Hill series, did that have one game called The Room? Yeah, that was the fourth game. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. That's another one that I only tried superficially, and I played like the first half hour where you're stuck in this room, and there's like, I don't know, pulls you into another dimension or something. I'm yeah. like, this is awesome. And then I go through into the other dimension, and I got eaten by a dog, and I'm like, okay, fuck this. Yeah, the, 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 the fourth, the fourth one is very... Uh is very debated among fans whether it's good or not. It was a big right. departure from the uh, previous three games, but the general consensus is that it's still good, just different. I think okay. the departure from the original ones is what attracted me to it, and the first right. few minutes were like really captivating and really spooky. But after that, it seemed <laughs> too much like the original games, and I lost interest. Gotcha. I, I haven't played it myself, but I do plan to sometime. I've only played the first three games so far. Mm. Alright, well, that's all I've been playing, to be honest. Uh, what about you, Brian? All right, so I have taken this week off for vacation, and uh, I'm surprised that I actually got out into the world and did some <laughs> some actual sociable fun things. But uh, <laughs> in addition to that, I also uh, had lots of slothful time. And so one thing that I'll only mention quickly is that I had uh, I tried and failed to find some kind of a free-to-play massively multiplayer online game that I would find enjoyable. I think I tried okay. eight... I must have tried eight or nine of these games. Some of them were like 28 gigabytes to download. And oh, I would play for 12, I played for 12 minutes. And I'm like, this is stupid. And I uninstalled uh, it. It was a huge waste of time and resources. That's, that's basically my reaction to every MMO ever, but that's just me. Oh. Well, <laughs> you'll be happy to know then that in the end, uh, uh, because of all my dissatisfaction with all these failed attempts, I just bit the bullet and resubscribed to World of Warcraft. So uh, I've been playing a little bit of that this week. So you got back into the crack, eh? How is it? Yeah, you did. I am, so I have a whole bunch of little characters that are at various stages of completion, at various levels, and so depending on what sort of activity I'm in the mood for, I can always pick up and play something. So I picked up a Retribution Paladin, which is like a magic melee kind of a guy, and I'm having a really good time with it. I really enjoy leveling up my character and going through the world content and getting the story. As soon as I get to maximum level, I used to be more into raiding and stuff like that. Now I just can't be bothered because it's such a time sink, so... Oh, interesting. Do you tend to solo a lot more these days? I solo or I play with my wife. Mm. Oh, that's that's awesome. That sounds great. Sometimes I do the the five-player dungeons uh, occasionally, but... uh, Right. 
they're uh, they're often infuriating, so I don't really bother unless I want to make a healer or something. Then uh, then you have to right. be yeah. That that's what actually kind of turned me off from World of Warcraft back in the day. The the fact that you are in this massive world with all these people, but you still do a whole lot of stuff yourself. That that just kind of defeats the point for me. Yeah, yeah I it's, that's how I felt for quite some time. But uh, we we want to do an episode. Of, yeah, we'll have to do. Definitely do an episode on MMOs because it's got a lot of different yeah. ways of playing the game, even if it's very restrictive in some ways, too. Yeah, yeah, very much so. What my wife's enjoying now, she's been consecutively subscribed for, I don't know, it must be like four or five years or something now. Oh, jeez. Um, whereas I'm very fair weather. I will tend to subscribe for two months and leave it for two months and come back again. Right. Um, what she's been doing is they have this kind of a Pokemon thing now where you can capture these little pets and oh, battle yeah. them against other pets and level them up and stuff. So she's been big, big into that <laughs> yeah, stuff lately. It's, very it's kind of like a card battle game. It's really cool. Mm. Yeah, it's very. That's a very. Uh, that was a very. Uh, uh, what's the word? A Blizzard thing to add to their game. I like that. It is a real meta game kind of a thing. So I, I love that they give you so many things that you can do. Um, <laughs> so that's WoW anyway. Um, I. When, uh, I was very, very happy to hear that part two of Broken Age, the final part, is going to be released at the oh. end of April. Oh, yeah, I still need to play that. I oh, actually Lydia. bought the season pass from Gog a while ago. Oh, I well, So I played it when it was brand new. I absolutely loved it. Mm. And I replayed it again uh, last week, and I loved it all the same. It is so funny and so charming <laughs> and sweet and cute and such a nice pace. And it's a relatively easy game, so you can finish it without... Hints. It is yeah. a really, really terrific game. Love oh, it. Oh, that's great to hear. I've actually, yeah. I've actually been considering uh, live streaming a game again sometime soon, and I was actually thinking about doing a not doing an adventure game I hadn't played yet. But then I got to thinking, like, nah, what if I get stuck? But if Broken Age, is Broken Age, oh, it's a good one. And at least the first part is about four hours long or so. So it might be a bit of a long stream or a short stream, depending on how long you go. But that's a good one to do in one sitting if you've got the time for it. Or if I do it oh, in two parts, but we'll see. Yeah, still, uh, love still it so much. Good to know. Mm-hmm. And so finally, my go-to game, as always, is The Binding of Isaac Rebirth. Ah. Which, whenever I've got 20 minutes or two hours to spare or something, I'll pick that up and play it. And so I've been playing that in a special mode of co-op, which I've just discovered. Oh. Um, so this mode of co-op involves my uh, my little pet budgie, Maxi Galactica. Um, <laughs> whenever, I'm holding, whenever I'm holding my gamepad, she'll fly over to me and perch on it and start oh, biting kidding. my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so I play this game while she's biting my thumb. And every now and then, her foot will slip underneath the control pad or under one of the buttons, and I'll press right. the button, and she'll go, mad. <laughs> so despite her assistance, I've been playing that game. It is so adorable. And then otherwise, when she's biting my thumb, she makes these little quacking sounds. <laughs> so that is enormously rewarding. I love that. I, I, love oh, that I have to great. ask. Uh, your mm-hmm. your bird's name is that derived from an Ace Attorney game by any chance? Oh, good man, good man. Uh. All right, so this our our budgies' names are Phoenix, Miles, Apollo, Diego. Oh my God, and that's Max, funny. Maxi Galactica. Now, now that you mention it, now I can now I know now I see it. I, it's just funny. Before I heard all of those names and I didn't think anything of it. That's, that's really right. Funny. Well, we. We made the mistake initially of naming our budgies whatever, and then, so with right. budgies, you can't really, t- when they're young, you can't tell what gender they are until they're a few months old or so. So, right. Miles, for example, Miles turned out to be a girl. 
so we had a girl named Miles, and uh, so we wanted to think of an androgynous name, uh, preferably from an androgynous character, which is not too hard to find in the Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we figured, and we wanted to be a huge, a huge, uh, complicated name for a tiny little simple bird. So we were thinking either Maximilian Galactica or Maxi Galactica if it's a girl. So she's Maxi. <laughs> nice. I, I also oh. wanted uh, Jean Armstrong. I think that's my character, my favorite character <laughs> from that series. Who's this like very effeminate baker guy who wears this that's like great. pink baker's outfit? I think he's. he's uh, I, don't know, I don't know what game was he in. I've only played the first two. Oh, I guess he was in the third one. Yeah, I played he's the first really two funny. too. Uh, yeah. Oh, keep keep playing them. They keep playing oh, them. They don't get great. any worse. They get better I, and better. I, I don't know. After the second game, I uh, th- th- uh, I figured I'd already s- uh, seen enough. They they really just change one major mechanic in each one, kind of like whatever yeah. your superpower is at right. the time. So if you're not in it for the story, really, then there's not that much more to see. I like I right. like the story, but I didn't like the slog of going through the game to see the story. That that was my right. problem with it. That's fair enough. It is very much go to the screen, kind of click on everything, go to the next screen, something new unlocked on the first screen, so you go back there. So you're either into it or you're not. It's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. Well. Yeah. Um, okay, how, goodness how gracious, why don't we move along? Oh, yes, yeah. what was that? Um, any chance we can take a two-minute break for a pee? <laughs> okay, let's do that. Sure. All right. Do you want to stay on the line? Yeah. Yeah, Okay, sure. I'll be back. In yeah, we'll wait. I'll, I'll put you we'll guys on mute you, so you don't have to hear about some bathroom fun, and uh, I'll, I'll oh, be back. Much appreciated. Please do. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> okay, where are we? One minute and... One hour and thirty-eight p. I will put that in my bri- in my notes. <laughs> Good to know. Ah, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on here. We're uh, we're certainly taking our time getting to our topic, but I think that's what we're going to do after our break here. Oh, isn't that what you always do? Isn't it? I know. <laughs> hey, as long as we're having fun, right? Yeah, I hope you're having fun. I am. Oh, definitely. Great. It's nice to get a perspective on these PS1 games, actually, because that's a, a generation of consoles I skipped. Me, me too, actually. I've only been rediscovering them in recent years when I uh, actually bought some consoles, uh, finally. I've, mm. I've just been playing that PC for most of my life. Yeah, me too, really. Although I've had consoles here and there, but the last one I really invested in was Nintendo 64, and then I bought a friend's Dreamcast when I was in college, and I didn't really... Then I bought like a few games for PlayStation Two, and I haven't gotten any consoles since then. Oh, a few, a few Wii games. Oh, nice. The only, the only real non-PC system I had growing up was the original Game Boy. We only had. Oh, a, I love that. We only had a handful of games for that, but I still love the thing. I, especially, especially I, I can't talk. <laughs> I especially played uh, Super Mario Land Two and Wario Land One to death. I never played Wario Land. My wife loves Super Mario Land too. Is that the one where you ate carrots and be- turned into a bunny? Yeah, exactly. Or while oh, you, 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 you get bunny ears at least. Oh, okay. I uh, that, it, it's, it's I a very our, uh... it's a very easy game, but it's a lot of fun nonetheless. Well, that was my impression of Kirby, which is a game I love, love, love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boy. I played that one as well. Awesome. Kind of crazy. Well, my wife and I had our uh, honeymoon in uh, in uh, Netherlands and Belgium. Oh. And so we, uh, that was how long ago? Seven seven years ago now. So uh, I brought along my original Game Boy and I was playing the Zelda Winx, Link's Awakening. Oh my god! Which is a very good one. 
I never, and, I never actually owned that game, but one time when we went on vacation, the, our neighbors, so to speak, on the campsite uh, actually had that game, and I borrowed it from them, and I played that a lot as well. It was my very first Zelda game, and I loved it. Was that my first? No, I think I played Link to the Past on Super Nintendo first, and this was really similar to it. It was so surprisingly good, despite the limitations oh, yeah. of, that, of that little machine. Yeah, I really the, liked the, it. And I have the soundtrack for that game, and it's like an hour and 40 minutes long or something ridiculous. It's huge. Link's Awakening? I'm so impressed. Yeah, I'm very impressed. Hmm. I downloaded the yeah. soundtrack for it once, but it only had a couple of tracks. Oh, I'll uh, pass you a copy if you like. I'm, oh, I, think, sweet. I think it's that long. It's at least an hour. I think it's between 120 and 140 or so in, in length. Sweet. It's really good. That machine had a beautiful sound chip. Mm. Yeah, but the th- the thing is, uh, the Legend of Zelda games, a lot of them have stuff in them that I don't like for one reason or another, but Link's Awakening, I just love the shit out of it. Oh, did you play A Link to the Past on Super Nintendo? A little bit. I got stuck at one point and then just gave up. Oh, so pretty much every single one of those games is, you're on a map, and there's some stuff you can do now, yeah. and there's some stuff yeah. you can only do later when you get a tool. And that's every single Zelda yeah. game, as far as I can tell. I, I had a, so I I had a real problem that. with that in Ocarina of Time, especially. I don't know if you've played that one. Yeah, I own that one, although not the other one for Nintendo yeah, 64. Where, uh, where you're just following along the main storyline, I didn't really do a lot of the side quests. So at one point, I would just get stuck, and I had no idea why. And looking in a walkthrough, I then found out I had to go to a completely different place to find this one item I needed to proceed, and that just really annoyed me. Oh, I don't remember. I have. I don't think I've played that properly since since uh, it was new. Yeah. But that really amazed me. The graphics, anyway. That was a beautiful game for the time. Oh yeah, definitely. People speed run it now. <laughs> I like watching uh, the live speed runs sometimes. Not necessarily of that game because I think a speed run is still like five hours long. <laughs> are you guys talking about Link's Awakening? Yes, we are. Oh god, we were, and then game. we moved on to Ocarina of Time. But yeah. Oh, oh right, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, you played Link's Awakening as well on Game oh, Boy? Oh, God. I think I played Link's Awakening DX, uh, the color version that came out eventually. There's a color version? Oh, oh yeah. Damn. Yeah, it actually oh, added yeah. in a, new, a whole new dungeon as well. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's an absolutely beautiful game. Um, Is that Game Boy Advance? No, Game Boy uh, Color. Color, yeah. Oh, yeah, and really it, it, it actually does a good job of working with that tiny little palette it's got. That's excellent. All right. Oh, I'm feeling so much better. Thank you guys for your patient. <laughs> oh, no problem. Sure. All right. I might even leave. That was a fun little <laughs> intermission. I might even just leave that in. Sure. <laughs> By all means. All right. So why don't we, at very long last, get to our, our uh, main topic. Why don't we start to talk about uh, video game magazines? Sure. I, I for one, oh, I, I've always loved magazines my whole life. Video game magazines, Me too. anyway. Um. I would almost always have next to my bed like a stack of 10 or 15 magazines and I would read them to while I was trying to go to sleep and I would just reread them over and over and over I would like no reviews off by heart it's the funniest thing just to oh. read product reviews but uh, I loved them so much uh, yeah. reading PC Gamer magazine amongst others since at least like 92 93 yeah, yeah I'm totally on the same wavelength there Mhm So there's uh I didn't get around to it. At my parents' house, I have a whole bunch, maybe all, of my old video game magazines. Definitely going back to 93, if not 92. Oh, maybe man. even earlier, actually, now that I'm thinking of oh, Nintendo Power. Oh, I'm so Power. jealous you still have yours. 
So mine are in a box in our garage, so hopefully they don't have, like, families of voles or worms or something <laughs> chewing through them. But at the very least, I have several of them that are perfectly intact, and I'm very, very proud of them. So I will mm. most certainly, one of these days, when I have enough room for one, build a shelf and stick them on there. Oh, that's great. I, um, I started off with um, computing magazines mostly, although there was one... Um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm just going to say Akago. It's always easier for me. <laughs> um, sure. hmm. That um, you probably had access to very different uh, gaming and computer magazines uh, on your end of the planet. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm curious yeah, about yeah, that, yeah, too. Yeah. I, uh, uh, we, I grew up with uh, GamePro, which was kind of the, yeah. the kind of go-to magazine for all general consoles in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That magazine was huge. Yeah, and uh, I don't... I, I didn't really, to be honest, I didn't really read the articles. Um, I would kind of buy it on occasion just to get previews of upcoming games or like kind of scout out games that I was going to buy or I should buy. And mm. um, I remember GamePro for me, I had this one specific memory. Me and my, my buddy have the same memory. We bought the same issue of GamePro. And speaking of the Game Boy, this is very timely, um, the issue of GamePro was raving, just raving. I think it gave it 4.5 out of 5. Because, you know, it had these ratings like graphics, sound, fun factor, and they're yeah. all, you remember that, fun factor? And, and it was like 4 out mm. of 5, four, four and a half out of 5 or 5 out of 5. And they said it was the best Game Boy game ever. And it was called Faceball 2000. Have you guys ever oh, heard of Faceball? no. Yes, I have. The, like, first-person shooter, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember we, it was we, on SNES as well, and I actually, years and years yeah. later, played a browser version of it. Oh, oh you're the kidding graphics me. were kind of cool on SNES too, weren't they? Oh, were they? They were like fong shaded spheres or something like that. I don't know. It kind of had some style to it. I only saw it in screenshots. I never played it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, I can tell you, it looked like absolute shit, and it played like absolute shit on the Game Boy. <laughs> I and, think 4.5 out of 5 is like the lowest score GamePro ever gave, wasn't it? Uh, exactly, yeah. And I should have known then that basically GamePro was basically an extension, the marketing extension of, of half of these companies. <laughs> I, um, I couldn't believe it. So we, we rushed out to buy it because it promised multiplayer, which was a big deal. Um, this is, you know, in the era of Doom, and the idea that we could play a multiplayer Doom-like shooter on our Game Boys via a link cable just, just blew my mind. So my friend and I rushed out to the store. We borrowed some money from our parents, or we begged for it. I don't know how we got for it, but it was 40 bucks. And I remember it was a lot of money because the game had just came out. And we both bought it. We both sat in the car ride home, hooked up our link cables, and we played it for about two minutes and realized that it was one of the worst games we'd ever played in our lives. Oh. It was just absolute uh, trash. It, uh, for anybody who hasn't played Faceball 2000, the general idea of it is basically um, it's a, a first-person um, maze game, actually. Shooter is, is, way too, is, is way too much of a compliment. And all you can do is um, it's, it's, it's able to render the maze kind of King's Quest V style only maybe two or three steps ahead of you, so you've kind of got it'll, it'll just either terminate in nothing or a wall. Oh, and God. you're hunting, yeah, you're just hunting for your the other player, but the problem is, the game didn't have a proper um, dungeon renderer, so all it was doing was repainting the um, 
the room after each move. So it didn't wasn't actually doing anything on the fly. And um, that meant that it's turn-based, basically. A turn-based maze game shooter over a multiplayer where you can shoot one little Pac-Man dot, basically, at the other player and hope that it hits. Um, and the only way it can hit is if the person is directly in front of you. It's just absolutely right. awful. Um, and that was... That was my big beef I had in the back of my head was I never forgave GamePro for, for burning 40 of my dollars, and I couldn't even give away the game at some point. It was so stinky. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. Since, yeah, so, since it was uh, on the original Game Boy, did you need uh, two cartridges to play in multiplayer? Yes, yes, you did. You needed, and that's why that's why my buddy and I bought it. So collectively, we burned 80 bucks just to play a game oh, for maybe five God. minutes. Brutal. It was it was awful, and it was like you know forty bucks in the early nineties. It was a recession. That's probably worth about sixty bucks now. It was a lot of money to drop, and oh man, I just remember being like enraged because I had there was other games up on the shelf. There was like um, a Castlevania game. There's this amazing game called Gargoyles Quest that I wanted really bad. Mm. Um, oh yeah, RPG, isn't it? No, yeah, kind of RP, RPG slash uh, side scroller. Oh, okay, yeah. It was, it, it was with an RPG elements, I guess you could say. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was a fantastic game, and <laughs> I remember it, it was one of those moments. It's like a. It's like a, a forking path in life. You either go with game A or game B, and I went with game B, and it was just what a, what a terrible choice to make. Um, <laughs> all all because of game pro game pros raving, and and the article even raved about how great the multiplayer was, and it makes me wonder if they actually had even played the game. Mm. Yeah, just like press release to review. Yeah, direct. exactly. And or it's more that like we'll, we'll let the uh, PR people over at uh, at the in- industry write it, and we'll just publish whatever they want to write. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, that was my I first so. first real kind of meaningful experience with the gaming mag. Mm. Yeah, I think GamePro must have been my second or third gaming mag. Um, oh wow! What? comes to mind about GamePro was, you mentioned the different uh, rating scales for the different aspects of the game, and I'm yes. sort of remembering, not only did they give it numbers, but they also had these kind of colored pictograms of how excited the face was, and it went from, like, <laughs> dull That's to right. awesome or something, and awesome had, like, this super happy face with the hair sticking up and these, like, excitement lines coming yeah, out of it. Yeah, exactly. I just remember there's, like, a lot of blonde, spiky hair. Yeah, that too. What else do I remember? I think it always, I don't know if it always or sometimes came with a poster. I have a Street Fighter 2 issue. That was the only one that I remember being oh, wow. able to find. And it has this great Street Fighter 2. It was a double-sided Street Fighter 2 poster. Amazing. I, it's a shame it's double-sided because they're both fantastic. Nice. I have oh, a photograph cool. of it somewhere. Was it, uh, was it the main cover for the box or what kind of uh, poster was it? It was, no, it was something I had never seen before. I'll totally put this in the show notes if I can oh, find cool. the photographs, but... This brings to mind another thing that was unique about this magazine, which was, you know, of course, this was at a time where people were very polarized, Sega versus Nintendo. Yes. This was a magazine that covered all platforms equally. It did. Which... It even covered TurboGrafx-16 at some point. That's right. Oh, boy, did I ever drool over the games on that system. <laughs> that game had beautiful, beautiful graphics. I, I should look for one of those systems. That was such a cool system. Yeah, oh, I, I missed out on all of that stuff, unfortunately. I was, uh, I was a born and bred PC gamer. Yeah, no, no, There's that's no I, shame you know, in that. It's funny. Um, my experience was I was born a PC gamer, but in in the place I lived, you actually couldn't find computer magazines. There were very few of them. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason, you know, there were lots of Game Pros, lots of Nintendo Power based kind of magazines, but there were very very few 
uh, magazines dedicated to computers, so I didn't I didn't get a lot until like basically the mid '90s when CD-ROM started to come out and become more popular. Um, what did you? Uh, what was your first kind of meaningful magazine experience? I can go. Okay, that's actually kind of interesting because, uh, as I said, I'm I was primarily a PC uh, gamer back uh, during my childhood. So the magazine that I grew up with was also a PC magazine, and oh, nice. Uh, would that have been a Dutch one? Yeah, it's a, uh, it was a Dutch magazine focusing primarily on PC uh, called Software Hits, which basically translates to Software Guide. Okay. And it was it's interesting in a lot of ways because uh, I started reading it at the end of 94, starting 95. But they actually started way back in 1990 as kind of a spin-off from what was in an uh, MSX magazine. Okay. The MSX, I don't know if you know, it was a Japanese home computer which actually had a lot of uh, popularity back in Europe as well. It uh, oh, wasn't it built by Europe. NEC? Uh, uh no, I think it was actually Philips. I'm not sure. Oh, but... Philips. I think you're right. I think it's actually a Philips hmm. machine. Yeah, uh, I might be confusing it with the NEC yeah. 8801 or something. Uh, but yeah, but anyway, I I never owned an MSX or anything, but uh, apparently by that time, you know, the MSX was starting to uh, die out, and uh, not a whole right. lot of software was coming out for it anymore, and by that time, they figured that PCs were finally starting to catch up to kind of the graphical sound level to, of the MSX, so they started covering PC games instead. Oh. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. Usually they'd like... Rename the magazine or shut one down and start another yeah, one. Yeah, that is that is what they did. Apparently, okay. it was a different magazine at first, but uh, they start they started the software hits because the MSX was dying out, so they shifted their focus to PC instead. Okay. But during but during the first uh, few issues of that, they did still cover a few MSX games and, for whatever reason, Sega games as well. Oh yeah, um, for the Sega Master System, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, okay, the but... Sega Master System was kind of the only, well, maybe the Genesis or the Mega Drive a little bit too, but it was kind of one of the only um, consoles that kind of made it, did well in Europe compared to uh, in North America, because it really failed over here. Did, yeah. Uh, I don't know, it was 1990, so by that time the uh, NES was must have been out at, at the very least, right? Oh, yeah, and I think yeah. the Genesis was, what, 91 or something? Yeah, That's right, be, but... yeah, 91. But they, but they didn't, they didn't cover it in the magazine, and they phased out the Sega games pretty quickly anyway. But I started okay. at around issue uh, twenty-eight of it, and by that point, they had uh, moved on to just covering PC and maybe a little bit of Amiga. But Amiga was also starting to die out by that time. Hmm. But yeah, Is, the, was it uh, mostly reviews, or what kind of magazine was yeah, it? Or yeah, was it, 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 okay. it was primarily reviews of video games and. Uh, the, the, the magazine came out uh, once every two months, so there were only six issues every year. Oh, wow! Hmm. And it like, did it? Um, was it the kind of magazine that would include game demos as a cover disc, no, or no, was it no, the no, type no, that was pure? No. Oh, okay. I actually get the impression that it was very cheaply made because a lot of the reviews were just text with maybe a screenshot or two, and. Uh, <laughs> You can really easily tell that they took the screenshots themselves, either by just shooting a picture of the uh, of the of the screen or by using a 
in later issues using uh, screenshot utilities and shareable ones at that because they still have the little uh, register to get a logo-free message, uh, <laughs> lo- logo-free screen message on them. That's I'm sure the readership thing. must have been pretty small if it was in Dutch. Uh, I don't. Well, could be. I don't know. But I, uh, I was subscribed to it from '94 through '98. Well, '98 was when the magazine folded, unfortunately, because by that point the readership had uh, shrunk down to such an extent that they couldn't afford to keep making it anymore. Apparently. Mm. Oh, w- that's too bad. Um, do you do you remember where you bought it? I'm just trying to I'm trying to get a picture. I, of, I don't know uh, where we even got it from at the time. Uh, I think it may have been our neighbors who were subscribed to it at the time uh, that okay. my, bro- my brother might have found out about it then he got my parents to uh, get us a subscription to it so we just got it in the mail every month <laughs> every two months oh that sounds great I um, I would have died to have a, a magazine completely devoted to PC DOS stuff uh, in the oh 90s. yeah that just, you know that we had like a lot of like computer and video game world there were a lot of famous magazines here but they didn't None of the ones that I could get my hands on were explicitly devoted to games. They were always kind of a mishmash of, you know, edutainment software and um, PC productivity stuff like Norton Antivirus and all that kind of stuff. And well, they, they, they covered that kind of stuff as well at at certain oh, points. Oh, okay. 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 You know, for it was a very serious-minded uh, magazine for, you know, serious PC users, but they primarily covered games for the people who were into that. And right. it was it was kind of strange reading it at that young age because it was because it was such a serious minded uh, magazine and very heavy on text over uh, pictures. So yeah. What hmm. about uh, what about you, Brian? Did you you said you started off with more console based uh, mags? I am struggling to remember what. The, the first gaming magazines I must have seen. Because, I mean, I went to bookstores a lot with my parents, and I would look at magazine sections a lot. Um, either the first the first gaming magazines either would have been Nintendo Power, which I subscribed to, and it was the only one oh, I subscribed wow. to for a long, long, long time. Wow. Or it would have been Computer Gaming World, which is a yeah. magazine I read almost every single month, but for some reason I never had, like, 30 bucks to my name at any one time, so I would spend <laughs> six bucks on one issue and figured I'd subscribe some other time, and that went on for, like, nine years. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was not the most economical of choices. Yeah. <laughs> that was just the way that I did things. Computer so, Gaming uh, World was kind of the, yeah, it was the kind of DOS game slash Windows game uh magazine. That was the only one I could think of. And I to be honest, I didn't buy a lot of issues because it was very pricey here. I remember it being around eight bucks or something. Um It is me. pricey. Yeah. And it and it, it was, was. It, it was a great, great book. But by that point I had already kind of reasoned out some economics and realized that I would rather have uh I would rather save up for potentially one DOS game at the end of the month than four issues of uh computer gaming world or something. <laughs> oh sure. Well um But how would you know which ones to buy? Oh, so that's a very good lead into what I was about to say. <laughs> I read I read those Computer Gaming World magazines. You know, I would flip through every single page, and I would read them pretty superficially because that was another very text-heavy magazine for yes. a more mature audience. Definitely. And in fact, to my surprise, and I'm totally going to put a link to this in the show notes because there's a website now called the CGW Museum. That's CGW right. CGW being Computer Gaming World. Oh. They have an archive of every magazine that they ever put out. Wow. Yeah, lo- lovingly started by hand. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and I think some of them are even, uh, like, some of the masters that they printed and did the cutting for and stuff. Nice. Yeah. They're absolute pristine pristine scans. How many issues um, were there? They, this magazine started, I think, in, like, 1982, which is unbelievably early. 82 That's or crazy. 83. Very, very early. Maybe it was 84. And it went on until, I think, 2006 or so. Oh, man. Wow. That's nuts. So, 20-plus years of magazines and... 12 issues per year. They have some beautiful... Like, if you just look at the earliest magazines, they're very hard for me to relate to. I don't know what the heck they're talking about. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, that, I, I didn't even own a computer. That's then. a really stark but, contrast to the software kits because, as I said, they only released uh, once every two months and they ran from 19, 1990 to 1998, so there were only 52 issues in all. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I, you know, I think, and I started about halfway through, so I only had the... Uh, well, 28 through 52, but I later bought... The first uh, twenty-seven issues from a uh, through a uh, through a Dutch auction site, actually. Oh, cool! Oh, that's great. Yeah, because because I I always was really curious about those older issues. So, and it was a very nostalgic were, were they, magazine uh, for me. Were they an interesting read when you went back to them? Oh, definitely. L- like I oh, said, cool. it was it was surprising to find that they started out uh, covering a lot of MSX stuff as well. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that must have been a really rewarding find. Yeah, those old old ones. That's excellent. But I I actually have to say their reviews early on were kind of crap because they spent they spent a lot of time with each game detailing a lot of the technical uh, details and how to get the game running and uh, kind of explaining the basic story setup and everything. And then at the end, you get a tiny little paragraph talking about okay, I thought this game was pretty good, pretty bad, etc. Oh, so it's like a product review more than uh, more than something critical, I guess, for the most yeah, part. Yeah, but they, they they still give individual ratings for uh, graphics, sound, uh, gameplay, mm. documentation, and value. Actually, you know, depending on how oh. much the game costs versus for what you got. But, that's but, great. It, but documentation had a review, huh? That's great. The documentation had a review. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. But you know, you could kind of get the impression they didn't spend a whole lot of time with each uh, individual game, so they kind of had to. Uh, Rush their reviews. Oh, okay. Um, what, what was I? What was I trying to say? Uh, fuck! I, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Go on. Uh, no problem. So, Brian, you right. uh, well, you uh, yeah, I'll mention about uh, yeah. I have. I own a whole whole bunch of them. I have dozens of them, and it's a terrific magazine. It had a lot of regular columnists. One. Who was probably too articulate that so articulate that I didn't really read her column very often <laughs> was a woman who went by the name of Scorpia. Oh she, yeah, she read, read Scorpia. Um, she she um, she was kind of famous mm, in the CGW world. Totally. I don't know how long she worked for them. It, it was definitely more than ten or fifteen years or so, and she yeah. was mostly talking about role playing games. That's right. Which I wasn't really into until much later, like even into the two thousands. I yeah. didn't really like role playing games, with the exception of Ultima Underworld. Yeah, right. but she was they, they covered very the- articulate and descriptive, and she was kind of a a gonzo journalism sort of a thing where she would talk like she would delve into the game and talk about the experience of being inside of a mm. game a really unique journalist Interesting. who yeah. took it very seriously and was very very well accomplished they they yeah, actually talk a lot know. about it, about role playing games in uh, that magazine as well so, sorry chris oh, cool. oh no i was just thinking um i would love to know what happened to her as a writer because i came across her articles much much later when i was actually using um 
computer gaming world for a research project, so I was digging through the back catalog, and kind of any time you'd hit a major RPG, she would have an in-depth analysis of, of the entire game from kind of from beginning to end. She, she just really understood the mechanics of games, and she also really understood the way that storytelling works and, and atmosphere, oh, yeah. and, and she was, you know, not, a, she, she didn't pull any punches. She was very critical of some of the Ultima games, which I really appreciated. And um, Yeah, yeah, well, I read, an, I read an interview with her in the last three or four years or so, oh. um, asking where have you been and what happened, and she said, just as you say, she is t- completely head over heels in love with tons and tons of detail and depth, and that's right. something that she felt just became completely absent from computer games at a certain oh. point, and mm. she lost all interest in all computer games after that. Oh, oh you're kidding me. Them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really sad. So, I didn't realize that she left the yeah. whole industry. That's right. The magazine went on long after she had she had quit. So that, oh. that's quite a shame. Oh, that's she terrible. A, she could have been a lifer. That's for sure. So <laughs> I, I don't know what she does now. Um, I guess there are so some one, people who uh, kind of feel that way at some point. It's a shame. Oh, of course, of course. But you know, they're, well, I think, they're, I think they're free good, to you know, pursue their own path. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And it's also a good sign too that I think she she's right about certain things that you know I've I've not that I'm bitter of this but it's more I think some of the reason many of us play old DOS games now is because they do have that depth that's missing I was thinking of you know the most most recent um, um, not to pick on Bioware but some of the Mass Effect games or Dragon Age and what surprises me is just how superficial the experience is as a role playing game. Um, it's basically, you know, just a, a, a bunch of um, uh, dialogue branch navigation and, uh, and, and battles where no matter what you do, you're going to win. So, who, you know, the, the strategy of it doesn't really matter anymore. And um, I really have noticed that kind of being able to play some of the older stuff over the years. Um, I go back and I think, man, like, how, who would have thought that it was okay to, for instance... Um, mix together a puzzle and an RPG and an adventure game and and not get kind of stuck in one genre. And I'm, maybe that's kind of what she's speaking to. I'm not really sure. Yeah, oh, I know what you mean. And, um, and yeah, it does seem like nowadays RPGs, the single-player RPGs, focus more on the complexities of, like, interpersonal discourse and stuff like that, whereas if you want to find the strategy element of things, I think that's all yeah. down to the massively multiplayer games, which are super, super complex. And that's right, yeah. You can you can win at no matter what in the earlier levels, but later on, if you don't know what you're doing, then you'll be useless. <laughs> but a yeah. lot of people don't, a lot of people really don't like the separation of those elements. They look at the good old days where all we had were the single player RPGs, where everything was under one roof. Yeah, so I think that was very much where she was coming from. Yeah, I can. It's it must have been a pretty sharp, sharp curve for her. I'm guessing she probably quit around the late '90s, um, and that I would think be, so. Yeah, I would guess that's basically you know the the hearkening of the uh, of the FPS obsession um, at that point, and. You know, the, the right. hardcore FPS obsession where games just seem to be getting dumber and dumber, uh, not to paint too with too wide of a brush. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one way of looking at it for sure. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad you brought up Scorpia because I, I, I came across the name so many times doing, doing this research a few years ago, and every time I came across it, I was just blown away by, you know, what, why isn't this person writing now? <laughs> 
No kidding. She would often have, like, between, like, two and five pages or something to do her thing, so she was a very impressive writer and, like, a real mainstay and pillar of that magazine for a long time. Um, oh. But what I remember, I, I think what was most helpful for me um, in that magazine was they had a mail-in card where you can vote for whatever your favorite games were oh. of that month, and they would tally those uh, answers and put that into a top 100 list at the end of every <laughs> issue. That's awesome. So I wonder for a long time until I read the fine print, and that's where these numbers came from. Because they used some kind of a weird scale where I thought it was like out of 100 or something, but then the top games would all be like 125, 115. Right. So I don't know exactly what those mean, if those uh, have something to do with like a trend of whether they're getting more popular over time or something. I just don't understand <laughs> the numbers themselves. But that's really... I would always cheer for the most popular games, and that's that would be a big buyer's guide for me. Yeah, I was going to say, genre and overall. you just reminded me that my, my, my big memory of Computer Game World was actually standing at the magazine rack, and I instantly flipped to the back to find the uh, top 100 list. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I would actually just go by, based on that. So, yeah, that answer is... Our question of how, do, how the hell did I know what to buy? It was because it was two things, reading the top 100 in CGW, but also I would just walk around brick-and-mortar computer stores and just look at the games. I would, I would stare at the boxes for hours to make my decision on what I might buy. So it wasn't just, yep. wasn't just the magazines for me. Well, I miss that. <laughs> and the only other thing I really remember about Computer Gaming World, other than I don't think it ever came with a, a pack-in disc like other magazines, was that sometimes they would review shareware games and just such a humongous list of, like, a humongous number of games in general yeah. that they would sometimes have several pages with, like, one page might have 40 reviews on it, and every review was, like, one sentence, <laughs> which was quite an interesting thing. Otherwise, they had a rating scale out of five stars, and yeah. you could get between, like, zero or point five out of five stars. You know, I want to say that I think Computer Gaming World did have a cover disc occasionally, because um, I'm pretty sure, and somebody, please, if one of our listeners knows better than me, um, I might be confusing it with another mag, but I'm pretty sure that there, it would come out... You know what? It was, sorry, I'm, I'm totally confusing things. It was PC Gamer that had the packet, the cover discs. Sorry. Yeah, they definitely did. Yeah, it was PC they Gamer. I just did. realized I was thinking of PC Gamer. Yeah, not computer. I don't think CGW ever did. Oh, and I will also mention that I guess in 2002, 2003 or yep. something maybe, uh, they changed the name from Computer Gaming World to Games for Windows magazine. Oh, that became Games which for was, Windows? Yes, it did, and that oh. was really, really weird, because I think Microsoft kind of, t I don't know how Microsoft was influential enough to have them rename the magazine yeah. that, but I started listening to their podcast, which is one of, like, the best podcasts in history, by the way, the ga Games for Windows podcast. It wow. is so, so hilarious. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. hilarious. Um, and that was around the time when there was a guy named Jeff Green, who was the editor-in-chief, and uh, right. he had a writer that I've mentioned before and I really liked, named Sean Elliott. Right. A lot of really talented writers were working for them around then. Oh, cool. um, But Microsoft, after they gave him the name, like, never talked to them again, and on the podcast, they would badmouth Microsoft all the time, <laughs> just for meddling with especially their Games for Windows uh, software. Which they were so ashamed to be named after because they hated that <laughs> that client software <laughs> that was bundled into some game sometimes. That's but, hilarious. Oh boy, I, I have um, that that uh, podcast was when it was about to be pulled off of the OneUp.com website when the magazine sadly got canceled. I took an archive of every single one of those podcasts. Oh, so I have those great. On my Nice. Web server. I'll stick a link to them on the show notes. They oh yeah, you so, have to. So funny. Oh, uh, what year? So what year do you think that was? The early two thousands when they were podcasting. 
Yeah, they did it for three years or so, oh, I guess. So cool. that might have been like 2003 to 2006. So right. it's fun to look back at the games from those eras as well. But yeah. boy, are they funny guys. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, mean, could, I could go. I was just wondering, um, did you ever get any kind of English language um, magazines in uh, the Netherlands, or was it mostly uh, uh, Dutch? Well, I think we might have gotten a couple of English ones as well. Uh, I'm not sure if I ever read any of them, but we don't. Oh, the UK, I guess. Well, could be, but we primarily got German magazines as well. Oh, and, oh yeah, PC gaming was huge there. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. the, and the German actually, magazine actually industry have a, was a big deal. Yeah, I actually have a fair number of uh, German magazines as well that I wa- actually wanted to talk about because. Uh, oh, do you speak German? Ein bisschen. A little bit. <laughs> More than me. Yeah, but uh, it was actually uh, dur- throughout the 90s, uh, me and my parents would actually go to uh, Luxembourg every uh, every summer. Oh, wow. And we'd, we'd stay at a campsite there, uh, you know, uh, set up a tent, and occasionally we'd go and uh, go on treks through the woods and everything, and I was... <laughs> I was an... A complete little asshole of a little kid, of course, because I was bored out of my skull because I didn't have my computer when we were there. <laughs> yeah, but to kind of make up for that, my parents would always buy me one of these German gaming mags that came with a CD-ROM. Oh wow! And you know, so I had something to look forward to once we got home again. <laughs> that must have been so painful to have CDs <laughs> that you actually can't. Can't load up for another few weeks. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, something like that. But you know, the magazines themselves were fun to read. And the first one of those that I actually got was one called Fun Online, which okay. I, I am pretty sure doesn't exist anymore these days. But it was interesting in a lot of ways. It was, uh, it was a PC gaming magazine that was kind of more uh, focused on kids. You know, they covered they covered a lot of educational software as well. And right. I rem- and. I actually went through uh, the issues that I still have of those uh, quite recently. And the striking thing about them is that they have this uh, this very colorful cast of uh, mascots, basically, to kind of frame the the, 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 the magazine. Uh, the primary one being an anthropomorphic crocodile called Zaki McHacker. <laughs> And the, and that's cool. And between the reviews and previews and everything, there were actually comics uh, fe- featuring Zaki and uh, the other characters, you know, going on adventures. And basically, the plot is that Zaki is this uh, private detective who uh, has a special glove that allows him to go into cyberspace, and he uses this to fight <laughs> against a, a villain called Al I Gator. That sounds so. That's a lot of backstory 90. for. For a magazine yeah, it, mascot, that's a heck of a lot of story. It was pretty silly, but it, <laughs> it, was, it cool. was a lot of fun. And <laughs> the cool thing is the, CD, the CD-ROM that came with the magazines, they had the very cu- uh, completely custom-made kind of menu system also based around oh. the, these characters. And every oh, cool. every single CD-ROM would also have a digital comic you know, with uh, music and sound effects as well, which was kind of cool. Oh, that's so was great. this um, was this a Windows three point one or DOS based? Uh, it, well, originally Windows three point one, I suppose. But around this time when I started reading it, the uh, Windows 90, 95 was already out. Oh so. wow! Oh, okay, so it's already and, into the full multimedia era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
on these on these discs were of course also demos for games which were split into two categories regular games and what they would call iq games or educational games and a lot of those were were in german as well but you know they were still pretty interesting to go through and Um, i oh i'm curious by the way having played some demos on the german uh cds did you ever come across games that you were already familiar with but you played a demo of the german version and found it to be censored in any way Uh, Not not that I remember. Obviously, they would be in a German language, but I don't don't think I actually came across any games that I already played because, you know, the thing is, I I didn't have a lot of money to buy my own games back then. I just played what I had and, you know, read magazines kind of to make up for that. Oh, yeah. sure, and when you don't have a lot of money, like we didn't either, those demo CDs went a long oh, way and kept entertained for yeah, a long exactly. time. And I, I, Thank goodness for those. Yeah, I am so... I regret it forever that I got rid of those demo CDs years ago. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, but I, I had a I lot know, of You think you'll never those. want them, you think they're shareware, but then they become irreplaceable. Yeah. I remember, yeah. Um, I actually, I only knew of one German gaming mag, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was kind of seemed like to at least North Americans, the most important one. Um, kind of the most the, the, the biggest German gaming mag out there, because I remember that they had published somehow, I don't know the name of the magazine, they had found screenshots of Ultima 9. Um, oh. And, yeah, and this would be in 1990... Uh, 1997. Like, this is when, you know, Ultima 9 oh, it was... came out like two years after yeah, that, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, Ultimate, uh, Ultimate Nine. Uh, I I don't know. Did it? Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. Was, sorry, this was 1995 that it was publishing. Sorry, I got it all, oh, all the dates wrong. Boy. Yeah, yeah. It, it in '95 they were publishing screenshots, and it, the game didn't come out till '99, 2000. Um, Damn. Yeah, so that must and have I been a really uh, early version back when it was still uh, more of a right. top-down game like the early ones. That's exactly what it was. It was. Um, I'll never forget. It's burned into my mind. It was. Uh, um, the screenshots were actually republished in. Yeah, one of the North American magazines, and they said I think it was called Game. Oh, something crap. It was on the tip of my tongue now. Game. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Oh shit. Um, but uh, it had a, almost a very English-sounding name for a German magazine, and. Um, they published these two screenshots, and I remember they blew my mind, because at the time I had been playing Ultima 8, um, because Ultima 8 had been released in, I think, 94 or something. Um, and it was a shot of the interior of a tower, um, like, a, like a stone tower, um, and there's just some, staircase, there's some staircases going up. And then the other screenshot was of the Avatar's house, and it was of this little cottage house with a... a I remember seeing this... 3D pile of wood and an axe and a stump beside it. And I remember thinking it was the coolest thing I'd ever saw, you know, in, in, in 3D at that point. Because Quake, I think Quake had came out that year, and I thought, oh, this looks way better than Quake. Quake looks like a piece of shit compared to this. Um, nice. <laughs> and, you know, and famously, they ditched, they ditched that whole interface, they ditched that whole engine uh, a year later and went with a much, well... Yeah, we won't talk about Ultima 9. But, um, yeah. yeah. Didn't they, like, it, apologize for Ultima 9? They, like, refunded the... They sent you a new disc or something with a patch? <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they actually sent they out new major. discs. Yeah, they sent out new discs to, to everyone um, who had bought the first version of the game because they admitted that it was basically shipped in beta. 
Wow. <laughs> That's a very costly faux pas. Yeah, I remember, I want to say that the first version of Ultima 9 that I, that re- was released on CD, and I own a copy of this, um, I think if you searched, if you looked at the CD volume, oh, somebody, somebody please correct me on this, because I remember it was there was some sort of scandal, but if you looked at the volume label, um, it actually openly said version 0.9 or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, too funny. Yeah, it was kind of like openly admitting that it was basically a beta that you were receiving. And, oh, oh, oh and the big reason was, um, when it when Ultima 9 shipped, um, it uh, didn't work on, I think, 3DFX cards. I think it uh, only worked on Riva TNT or something like that. Or, oh, and 3DFX was the most popular. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's brutal. Well, I'll put out a call to my my friend Bram, who gave us his list of games that he enjoyed. He's the one who uh, told me about the whole Ultima 9 disc reshipping debacle. So, yeah. Bram, if you still have your disc, let us know about the version number, please. I haven't yeah, actually played. I, I haven't actually played any of the Ultima games, but I have watched the entire uh, retrospective done by the Spoony one. Oh, those are great. Those are yeah. hilarious. He went in, he went into a lot of detail of what exactly went wrong with Ultima 9, and it, yeah, it's it's a mess. It is, yeah. I think, you know, the great thing about Ultima 8, because Spoonie is also br- brutally vicious about Ultima 8, yeah. but um, Ultima 8 is a complete experience in some ways. Like the, It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and people can disagree whether it was good or whether it was an Ultima, but Ultima 9 is just a mess. It, it, it's like walking off the edge of a cliff half of the time. You don't know if there's actually going to be any more story or if it's just a, a dead end in the story because nobody actually could implement the rest of the story there. Yeah. Hmm. Pretty stinky. Stinky. <laughs> I like uh, one thing that you mentioned, by the way, was having a screenshot burned into your mind. Mm. Yeah. That reminds me of something. <laughs> I, I have some screenshots burned into my mind as well, which I, I don't know. My, my, I had fireworks behind my eyes when you mentioned that. Because <laughs> I am remembering reading Nintendo Power Magazine and seeing the very first screenshots in the, the story about Super Mario World before the oh. Super Nintendo had come out. Oh, cool. oh wow. I, absolutely drooled over the screenshots because, of course, Super Mario World was the pack-in game for the Super Nintendo, the yeah. very first game for that system, which was utterly drop-dead gorgeous compared to Super Mario 3 for the yeah. Nintendo, which it was, came out it before was, it. It was so colorful. I remember that was the big thing so that I colorful. saw was like just bright greens and reds that I never saw before on a TV. Exactly. And so the one screenshot that's totally burned into my mind is one that I actually kind of misconstrued as something else. Um, In Super Mario World, one of the power-ups Mario gets is a cape that allows him to fly. And so they had a screenshot of him, like, wearing the cape but falling down so that it was kind of fluttering behind and above him. Oh, right, right. I I know exactly what you mean, yeah. So it sort of looked like he was wearing this like pointy wizard hat, and I'm like, oh my oh. gosh, it's gonna be Wizard Mario. <laughs> cool. So oh even God, though I had adorable. gotten that one wrong, there was there was not a thing in the world that I was disappointed with when I played that game for the first time because that is just a classic. That's my favorite Mario for sure, Super Mario mm. World. That's that's a lot of people's oh, favorites, along with awesome. uh, Super Mario Three. Yeah, yeah, that's, but yeah, uh, I adore it. Speaking of screenshots, actually, in so, uh, back going back to software hits again, again, hmm. uh, <laughs> I was something of a scaredy cat around that time, you know. Uh, <laughs> and primarily, one one of the things that's really scared the crap out of me were Sierra games. Oh, Leisure Suit, yeah. Leisure Suit Larry, King's Quest, Space Quest. I was scared to death of playing those because of the deaths, the deaths in those games. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, and 
there were two issues of software kits that after reading them I actively shunned them for years upon years because of uh, some of the things inside of them one of the issues was the one that had a review of Phantasmagoria in it right uh huh and it, it wasn't the review itself or anything that scared me. It was an ad for it on the inside cover. You know, it was just completely black with the Phantasmagoria logo, a few splats of blood, and some tiny screenshots along the bottom. And it was one of the screenshots <laughs> that really scared me, where it was just the protagonist uh, looking scared while a hand reached towards her. That just <laughs> really freaked me out for some reason. <laughs> yeah, sure. Looking at these magazines really gets your imagination yeah, going yeah, like yeah, me yeah, with yeah. that screenshot of Mario. I can totally see where you're coming that from. Was, it, that was especially the case with this magazine because of how sporadic they were with screenshots and um, most of the reviews were just text. So you, ca- you really had yeah, to use your imagination right. for these. Wow, that's a good point. Yeah. That's really something. But, but I, um, the, I, sorry, but, go ahead. Yeah, but then in the next issue, they had a review for Gabriel Knight 2, which was... Which was uh-huh. another Sierra FMV game, and this one is a lot sillier in retrospect. But uh, you know, in the game, you visit Castle Neuschwanstein in Germany at one point, and one of the screenshots was just a shot of Neuschwanstein covered in mist. And for some reason, that also just freaked the hell out of me. <laughs> just this spooky old castle cover- shrouded in uh, mist and. I don't know. It, I guess it just kind of got my imagination going. Like, what could be lurking in there? Right. <laughs> That's great. Had you played the first Gabriel no. Knight so that you knew the no, context? No, oh. not at all. I, w- I was completely unfamiliar with it, Gabriel. Because there was some really spooky stuff in that first yeah, game yeah, too. Yeah, I know. But I, di- I didn't find that out until years and years later when I uh, finally got uh, Gabriel Knight and played it. By that point, by mm-hmm. that point, of course, my uh, phobia had pretty much passed anyway. So. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. That's a lot, wonderful. I um, did you guys ever read magazines for tips and tricks, like hints on uh, uh, oh, walkthrough yeah. kind of stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I have this oh, one yeah. specific memory. It was the only Nintendo Power I ever read my whole life. Um, my friend had a Super Nintendo. He's the only person I knew who had one, and he had a monthly subscription to Nintendo Power. At the time, this would be around 1991, let's say, um, 91, 92, um, I was playing Out of This World or, for our European friends, uh, Another World, um, Mm. on my PC. Well, it just so happened that this one issue of Nintendo Power had a five-page spread in the center which gave you a full end-to-end walkthrough for uh, Out of This World. Oh, that is and awesome. I remember, oh, I think I saw that, and they actually stitched the screenshots together yes. so that it looks like a big map. That's right. It was I can all, totally picture this. All together in one big row. There was rows and rows and rows of screenshots, and it would have like a little blurb, a little piece of text below each thing telling you what you needed to do to get past that room. And, That's so impressive. Oh, man. I remember getting so giddy and excited because... I, I asked my friend if I could borrow it, and he's like, why? He's, I'm like, because I want to play it on the computer. And he's like, oh, that's a Super Nintendo game. It, they, didn't, they didn't have it for the computer. I'm like, no, 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 I have it for the computer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I took this home, and thank God, the person who ported this game did an amazing job of making it identical to the DOS version, because hmm. it got me past these two spots that I'd completely gotten stuck through. And, yeah. um, 
and I was able to finish the game. And I remember just like I had, I had owned the game for six months at that point. Um, and I was finally able to see the ending to Out of This World. And I remember being just like, just like when you're a kid, you get that, that kind of burning sensation in your stomach because you're so overexcited. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I remember just like just dancing around that I got into the end of Out of This World. It was just, yeah, I was like, I, I would love reading magazines for hints and t- trips, t- uh, tips like that. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a it's a good thing you brought that up actually because that's one of the other th- reasons I loved reading software hits so much as a kid because mm-hmm. you know uh, the the a lot, the issues had a lot of uh, different walkthroughs and cheats and even uh, hex edit uh, tricks oh, uh, for for different games. Wow, that's, yeah. that's awesome. But because we missed a lot of the early issues, we missed a lot of the walkthroughs that were printed in those. But the cool thing is the publisher actually released a lot of those uh, walkthroughs and such printed in the early issues and comp- compiled them into these hint books that you could order from them. Oh, wow. So we, we ordered the first three of those, uh, which contained all the walkthroughs, cheats, what, whatever, from the first 27 issues. And those were a <laughs> godsend for me as a kid because I, you know, I, I love playing a lot of adventure games, primarily LucasArts, and they contained... Uh, walkthroughs for pretty much every major game uh, they made. Yeah, so, that's awesome. You know, you know, not being able to figure out the puzzles on my own because I didn't understand English that well uh, at that age was a really big help to me. And even so, I just loved reading through walkthroughs for games I didn't own as kind of a substitute for actually playing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, yeah. I, um, I, I, I unfortunately was one of those kids... Fortunately or unfortunately, I was one of those kids that would actually have to buy the official Sierra walkthrough. Uh, sorry, the info. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh-huh, the little white and red ones. Yeah, and I think we've talked about that on a previous episode with our friend Francisco. Oh, God. I mean, they were expensive. They were 10 or 20 bucks. I think maybe 15 um, hmm. And I I went through those things like, oh, geez, like they were water. Um, and they were they were terrible because I was not the type of kid who had a lot of, um, what's the word, self, uh, I wasn't able to, to not cheat. <laughs> if, I had, if, mm. I had, if I had the opportunity to cheat in a hint book, I would move the adventure window, the little red decoder uh, window down, and then peek at, you know, what was going to happen next. And that yeah. ruined so many adventure games for me, because I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I could have just, you know, only pulled it out when I needed it, but I would read it like it was a damn storybook. Yeah. Oh sure. Hey, there. Even if you know all the answers, those games are super enjoyable just to yeah. see an experience. Oh, definitely. That's true. Yeah. I I definitely had that problem as well, where I just had complete games spoiled for me because I read the walkthroughs beforehand. Hell, mm-hmm. one one time I read a walkthrough for the uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade game, and at one point it right. read. Uh, once you get near the end, now your father gets shot and you have to go get the Holy Grail. And at one point, when I saw the movie, I knew, hey, this is the part where he gets shot and needs to go get the Holy Grail. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. But one thing yeah, that, that game, really... Ir- that game was interesting. It kind of mm. closely followed the uh, movie much more more so than I expected. Oh, I didn't play that one. I only, I only played a little bit of it. I got stuck in the castle early on fighting against Nazis and I kept dying. Oh. Yeah, I was just going to say, as soon as you get to Castle Brunvald, uh, it uh, becomes unplayable almost, because you just have to fight Nazis room to room. It's a terrible maze. Um, You guys just reminded me of something I didn't get to talk about. Um, My girlfriend, it's a game I played this week. 
a girl, my girlfriend and I played Loom, and um, I mentioned mm-hmm. Loom last week. Um, we found uh, um, this very much goes against the classic LucasArts philosophy, um, a game-breaking bug. Well, let's not call it a oh. bug. Let's call it a game-breaking um, uh, dead end in, the, in Loom, um, which... You know, the game was made around the time that uh, Ron Gilbert would be writing his little treatise on uh, how to not make adventure games. But yeah. um, mm-hmm. it, nonetheless, it surprised me. Um, there's, you can get yourself into a completely unwinnable situation in Loom if you miss one of the uh, if you miss an encounter with one of the people in the game. You don't learn a certain spell. Yeah. Um, and uh-huh. and this is the interesting part. So. Um, you know, I'm, I was mostly writing down um, the spells as I came across them, but this time I forgot to write it down. Um, so the worst part is, unless you trigger it, uh, I'll tell people what the bug is, because it's, I consider it a bug, because there are, there are no other game-breaking scenarios in the game, because it's made so you can always, you can always um, find a way, whether it's through cheating, for instance, we can cheat, go online, you know, a girlfriend can go online and uh, look up the spell list, but even mm. if you use the spell from the spell list, it actually fails. Um, so you actually have to trigger a flag at this point in the game. Um, do you guys remember? Oh, oh Brian, well, you haven't. Yeah, you haven't gotten that far in it, have you? No, I haven't. Okay, I won't say what it is, but I'll basically say when you get to the Crystal City, um, make sure you trigger every possible uh, chance you get to learn a spell and write it down. Because if you miss one. Um, you're going to have to do one of those uh, seed game rewinds where you play back, back play hmm. through 45 minutes of Loom. <laughs> well, that, that... Oh, I will definitely do that. I think we can chalk that up to a bug because that's just something LucasArts never really does. It was part of their design philosophy. Well, that's the thing, yeah. though. You, you are required to find these spells because every time you play, they are randomized. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. But Except... the interesting thing is um, that the spells... They will normally not allow you to advance in the game unless you've learned all the spells. Um, yeah, that's the LucasArts way, really. Yeah, and what happens is you, what can, you'd expect. you can actually breathe by this one scene, never even notice that there's a spell available, never learn it, and then when you get to that, when you get to later in the game, you actually have no spells possible to cast, and it will not... Even if you cheat and look it up online, it still will fail. So, yeah, it's completely unwinnable at that point. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. But uh, it, 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 oh, by the way, it's the sharpened spell. Uh, it's the sharpened spell. If you don't see it on the scythe in the crystal tower, you um, you are screwed. And I hope you saved often, saved early. Well, oh, yeah, the, th- sorry, the thing is that there are that there are puzzles with multiple solutions, though. So you, uh, you can actually use different spells uh, in certain cases. That's true. Yeah, but this is this is one where I'm pretty sure. Um, you, you're using the spell as a. It's, it's the, basically it's the only spell that'll solve this one puzzle, um, mm. which is kind of nuts. Um, I, like I said, I, it's not a big problem. It's more just wow. I'm surprised that this actually exists. And this was in the EGA. I don't know if this is patched in the VGA version. Mm. Right. So I think the EGA is the the original and oldest yeah. of yes, the version. Exactly. So I'm sure they must have patched it later, but didn't go back to it. I bet they didn't think people would be nostalgic about <laughs> the version with fewer colors. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, yeah. Sorry. I, I, I've been kicking myself all week to remind myself to do that, but yeah, pretty interesting stuff. But, mm. uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Re- but regarding the... Sorry, randomized... I, got us off, I got us off track, yeah. No, no, I was, I was just clearing my throat, but... 
Regarding the uh, the randomized uh, spells, you know, two of the spells throughout the game always remain the same, namely the open spell and one other important spell. Yes, the the one I won't ruin for the end of the game. Yes, the very very important spell. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Because because the uh, notes for those already appeared in the audio drama that came with the game, so they couldn't really change those. Ah. That's right. And and I also think that they um that that one of them's already penciled in in the um in the manual that comes with the game too. Mm. Well, yeah, for that. For I, that I haven't reason, checked out either I of suppose. those things. So maybe I'm not getting the whole picture. Yeah. So anyway, um, just an interesting game-breaking uh, problem in Loom, which kind of surprised us. We spent you know half an hour trying different ways of doing it until we found out. Oh wow, <coughs> we actually missed a we missed a spell. So anyway, back to um, back to magazines. Um, I think I got us really yeah. off track. I can't remember where we were. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about screenshots. I don't know. Who oh. wants to mention the next magazine that was impactful? Yeah. Um, well, for me, it was. I've got uh, a few, but they. Oh. For me, it was um, a magazine called CD-ROM Today, um, which turned out to be originally a British um, um, magazine, but it was kind of imported into uh, Canada. And I, I bought that in my last year of high school, first year of university, kind of for two years. It only lasted, I think, three or four years. Um, it was kind of during the... CD-ROM Today. Yeah. It was kind of the peak, peak of the CD-ROM craze. And um, it included this great cover disc that they just called The Disc. And um, mm-hmm. it had always these amazing demos. They more tended to focus on multimedia stuff, so, you know, stuff with FMV, um, stuff with, um, you know, edutainment titles, that kind of thing. There weren't a lot of great game demos on there. Um, but I have some really fond memories because uh, I mentioned this during our great little uh, Acromedia Director episode with our friend Anatoly. Um that, uh, um, yeah, I was willing to blow, I think it was 20 bucks an issue. It was outrageously expensive. Um, yeah, those British ones are super expensive to import. Yeah, and I bought it only because I knew that I was going to get one full CD worth of stuff. They always try to pack their CD, like, full to the last bite, and I love that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I bought a few um, UK magazines, either because... Either because I already had the magazines that I was interested in and was still insatiably hungry for more right. gaming news and reviews or something. It was pretty rare because they would often be between 15 and $20 by the time customs and everything yeah. sunk their hooks into it. Um, I can't really think of the names of any, to tell you the <laughs> truth, because I would have just picked up one or two. I've got them in my in my box in my parents' uh, garage. <laughs> well, I'm glad but, you uh, kept it. It's I've nice been, to have had that choice. I've been kicking myself for years that I threw out those issues of CD-ROM today, because they've got some really obscure stuff on there, um, and, and some also some really good memories. I remember I Rebel Assault, I believe it was the magazine that I first saw the demo of Re- Rebel, Star Wars Rebel Assault on, um, and, and that, yeah, that was a game changer for me. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about you, uh, Akdrigo? Did you uh, did you have any other CD-ROM-based magazines that you were interested in at the time? Yeah, uh, another another one that we uh, bought <clears throat> uh, whenever we went to Luxembourg were either PC Games or PC Action. Which, okay, those both sound familiar. Yeah, to two me. different yeah, me ger- too. German uh, mags, both from the same publisher. They actually were very similar in uh, layout and content for whatever reason. I don't know what the difference between them was, really. Right. But uh, they were they were both really 
really uh, well written. Uh, had a lot of very eye-catching uh, articles with lots of huge screenshots, uh, lots of information. Yeah. Uh, now that I remember it. A lot of previews, a lot of reviews, uh, articles on E3 and all that. All, all of the, I want to say uh, that PC games stayed around for a long time. Yeah, they're, they're still around today. If I, uh, if oh, I'm not wow. mistaken, wow, that's, but, uh, that's incredible. Yeah, they they had a lot of stuff that I never saw in uh, software hits. So that was a, a, a pretty big eye opener for me at the time as well. That's Plus, awesome. of course, they also came with the awesome uh, CD-ROMs with demos on them. Yeah, would you remember any early demos you got from uh, those discs? Uh, the very first issue I bought had well, a whole bunch of demos on them. Uh, one of them I, that I distinctly remember was for a game called Chasm: The Rift, which oh, was kind yeah. of which was kind of a yeah, familiar. kind of an early Quake One clone. It was also yeah, a first-person right. shooter with polygonal graphics, but kind of a bit more primitive. But you know, interesting, that, interesting it, in its own it, way. Is it possible that it was based on the Duke Nukem engine or something? Because I, I really seem to remember an episode with possibly Ben and Anatoly on uh, on Anatoly's podcast where he brought that game up. I could be no, wrong. no, no, no. It, it it wasn't made in the build engine, as far as I know. Because as, oh, okay. as I said, the the game had entirely polygonal uh, graphics. Oh, and right. Characters. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh, cool. I um. I remember there was this one, uh, it's weird, Brian, that, yeah, we get these, like, images burned into our heads from magazines, because another one for me is this game called The Horde. Have you guys ever heard of it? <laughs> I, I had a, oh, I had a demo for that game Kirk on, another, on an, uh, a shareware CD, actually. Really? Mm. Yeah. That's I had really a lot strange. Of, I had a lot of shareware CDs around that time as well with shareware games and game demos on them. It was, mm-hmm. uh, Brian, no, that was that was the one with Kirk Cameron and was it Dick Van Patten or something? I I don't know. I I it's weird because the only thing I, I, so. I have burning in my head is these is it's like this image of these big like razor like teeth and it was used as yeah uh, like part of the the box. the box cover or something. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You're right. And I I have that image burned into my head from. Um, a copy of Game Pro, or no, no, it must have been it must have been Computer Gaming World. I don't think Game Pro covered PC games. Um, I think that game came out for Sega CD, as a matter of fact. Oh, uh, no, the three, I think it was right. the 3DO or 3DO. Oh, you're probably right. You're probably okay, right. Okay, so it is very possible it was in Game Pro because I I remember like looking at it. and I'm like, that looks terrifying. And you know, I, and, <laughs> and it was all cutesy too. I think exactly, yeah. And, and I remember being really afraid of it. It's funny how certain magazines, yeah, just really, really impressioned these deep uh, images in my head. Oh, definitely. Oh, that's a game that I remember seeing in computer stores, like on a rolling demo kind of a thing. And it was, and it was that game came out for both CD-ROM and floppy. Yeah, and I don't know whether the floppy had had stills, but the CD-ROM was, had some, like, optional FMV sequences <laughs> where I think it was Dick Van Patten was this was this king, and his prince was Kirk Cameron. Oh, my was, God. Like, this bumbling prince. That's awesome. And in the awesome. game, I think your your only move as the prince was, like, to spin around in circles holding your, your yeah, sword Sir Chauncey. Like, <laughs> out at arm length. Sir Chauncey. Oh. So I never played the game, and in retrospect, having seen it in a couple of times, it looks pretty horrible, but it's, like, half... It's kind of like the arcade Rampart, arcade game oh, Rampart. Oh, okay, like, okay. 
there's one phase where you build up your, your village. zone and then That's you have to defend right. it for a while. It was mixed yeah. RTS and mixed something else, yeah. Yeah. RTS and like action. Yeah, kind, yeah kind, of I, a, kind of a city building simulator where, yeah, you, you set, you set up your uh, villages, cities, defenses, and then when the horde comes, you have to run around and slash at them with, the, with your sword. <laughs> so it had Kirk Cameron like in FMV sequences? Yeah, it did. Oh, my <laughs> God. Bumbling Prince Chauncey. Oh, yeah. that's amazing because, you know, Kirk Cameron had, I don't know if anybody knows this, but he had a very interesting career after he left, uh, what show was it, Family Ties? Or um, he was, Something like that. yeah, one of the 80s sitcoms, he became this hardcore Baptist Christian. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. Yep, and 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 just kind of went off his rocker, I think, in the last few years. So that's that's yeah. wild. I'm. I don't know I if either of you know he was ever in a game. Yeah, but I don't I don't know if either of you know uh, the cinema snob. No, he's a no. he's an online reviewer of very obscure uh, exploitation movies, basically. Okay, but mm. but he also does uh, a lot of. The videos where he and his friends go out and see watch new movies, and afterwards they uh, sit in their car and they turn on the camera and they talk about what they thought of the movie. And right. one of the movies that they've been railing about a lot uh, last year was Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas, <laughs> which is a yeah, which is which is a movie yeah, he imagine. made where oh god, yeah, it's basically kind of an sort of a comedy but mostly it's about this guy trying to explain all the different facets of christmas and how they tie into religion in the most batshit insane uh <laughs> conspiracy theory kind of way yeah huh. i can imagine i uh i i yeah i did a little bit of reading up on him a couple of years ago and he 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 sound he sounded like he had really um, got involved in a cult-like kind of form of Christianity, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> really it. swallowed the Kool Aid. Kool Aid. Yeah, mm. but you know, Brad—that's so, that's what the cinema snob is called. And his friends, they just—he uh, he told all of his friends to go see that movie just for how batshit insane it was. Because <laughs> it, it was a horrible movie, but he just loved the shit out of it because of it. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, hopefully, hopefully, uh, our friend Richard Cobbett um, someday hears this podcast and and does an episode on uh, of uh, the crapshoot on uh, on the, the, horde. the horde because I'd love to, I'd love to hear what he has to say about the horde. It could very well be the sort of thing he does. I don't know. He doesn't usually do action kind of stuff. That's but, true. Uh, yeah, I can see him reviewing that. I would love. To, yeah. Hi, Richard. We hope you're listening to us. We would love to see, see an article on that. Awesome. So, do you guys have any All other right. magazine-related uh, stories? I'm running well, low. I want to mention. I want to mention PC Gamer for sure. Oh yeah, this is a magazine that I've read since almost the very beginning, and it was another one of those magazines where I just bought issue after issue off the shelf over and over and over, and no doubt paying four or five times as much as I would have if I had just subscribed to the damn thing and been <laughs> done with it. Um, this, I think this remains my favorite magazine of all time. I've always loved this magazine. In its heyday, I guess, like, around the time... I have one issue on my shelf at home, at, at my parents' house, for Quake. This magazine right. is something like 280 pages long Damn. or something. It's just this huge oh phone book-sized thing of, like, this golden age of, of PC. Like, they, they cover everything. That's They've always been, like, the the impartial... 
uh, go-to opinions that I've trusted so very, very much. And even the times where I've disagreed with them, I've totally seen with where they've been coming from and could understand why they would say such a thing. So they have a wonderful caliber of columnists and of uh, editors, which oh. I've always really admired and appreciated. Great yeah, and they, and they were like one of the long kind of holdouts of the whole uh, PC gaming world, that's for sure. Yeah, totally. They started later than some other ones, uh, I guess in the Windows 95 days, I That's suppose. Right. I think around 9... I don't know, maybe even a little earlier. I'm not sure. Yeah, and uh, I always wondered if... I, I think actually... Hmm. Sorry? What's that? Go ahead. Oh, I was just always wondering where PC Gamer came out of, if it was like a previous magazine rebadged, or if they had actually started from scratch somewhere. Oh, I think they were originally published in the UK, and oh. then they made a US edition, which ended up vastly outselling the UK one, and in fact, I think it remains one of the highest read magazines in history, wow. even today, current issues. That's it's crazy. one of the top sellers I know on like digital magazine uh, uh, subscription services, Amazing. and I subscribe to them now, uh, digitally. Cool. I might I be mistaken. I, well, I might be mistaken, but I think there might have been a Dutch uh, edition of it at one point as well. Oh, really? I think I might actually have an issue or two of it lying around. Huh. That's really something. Well, they have a very, like, telltale, lo- like, bold logo. So I guess if you ha- you'd know that if you saw it, I think. Yeah. yeah. Actually, actually let me check game. my pile real quick. Uh, talk amongst yourself for a second. <laughs> okay. Well, what I'll mention in the meantime, then, while, you're, while you are looking through your pile, is... Um, that um, for sure my favorite thing about PC Gamer are the individual personalities of like the the writers. And so this of course is one of those magazines I would keep stacked up next to my bed. Yeah. Um and read over and over and over, but I quickly developed some absolute favorite uh columnists and they would often specialize in genres I had absolutely no interest in, which was so awesome because I would just read their columns anyway because I loved everything they had to say about it. So oh. three in particular Two of them happened to be from Toronto, which I learned later on, which is cool for an American magazine. So one was a guy named Andy Mahood, and he was uh, like a race car driver, but also a a magazine columnist who would talk about all of the racing simulators. And he had really inside knowledge about like uh, rubber temperatures and the effects on how well it would grip the road and stuff and how well uh, the game would conform to information like that. he, he was a really interesting guy. Oh, that's cool. There's another one named William R. Trotter, um, who went by the name The General, and he would talk about war games. And he was in the magazine for a long, long time. Oh. Uh, I think at least a decade or so. Wow. He would geez. also talk about war games and strategy games, and he was a history buff and an author himself, so he would talk about like the historical significance of the settings of war games and how interesting it was that this army was pitted against that army because in history this is what happened and so if this army beat that army then this might have happened and that would have this domino effect into history where these people might speak Japanese or something really great insightful that's amazing that That sounds almost like literary or academic way of writing an article wow it really is like that's what I've loved about this magazine that it's not just product reviews but it's a real like enthusiast magazine of people that absolutely love and specialize and dedicate their lives to the appreciation of the medium so that really shines through with the enthusiasm okay I'm back 
didn't know that. Wow. Oh, you're back? All right, I will mention one more personality that I like from PC Gamer, and then I will hand it over to you and the latest news about your pile. Um, <laughs> the the other guy that I liked, who's another Torontonian, was a guy, I don't know what his real name is, he goes by the name of Deathlock. Oh, Deathlock, And he was yeah. very telltale. Classic. You know him? He w- He goes... He's very telltale because of his uh, photograph in the magazine. He's like got this. He's chomping on this huge cigar. Yeah. Like a, yeah. You look like more of a general than the general. Look like a general. He's like this kind of Duke Nukem caricature sort of a guy that I sort of picture. But in fact, he's like a a prosecutor lawyer oh, in Toronto who's like a super 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 right wing opinionated <laughs> guy that I can't to have the heart to follow on Twitter because of the upsetting things that he says. Well, I, but I, I love remember his, uh... Deathlock was, yeah, constantly a source of, 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 of um, disagreement uh, and, uh, uh, and in the fighting online when he started doing his online articles, too. Oh, okay. Well, that could very well be. I just remember him for writing about RPGs because right. that was his area of specialty. And I loved his insights. And he's not political in any way, at least in the magazine yeah. from what I remember. Maybe I needed to read it again with uh, fresh eyes. But uh, no, I've always loved his columns. And Oh, yeah. And games that I would have no interest in otherwise. I, I loved just reading everything he had to say about them. Yeah, I remember Deathlock. So those three great De- writers. Deathlock had some pretty amazing stuff written on the Ultima series. And I remember having... It was one of the, yeah. one of the first times I had saw real in-depth writing before, and I was really blown away by it. This being the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Cool. So a hell of a good magazine. So, Mr. Akago, what is your what is your uh, report of the pile? Oh, yeah, I did indeed have a few uh, issues of it in Dutch. That's cool. Oh, nice. So it is indeed the same the same magazine? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. That's great. I'd be curious whether the games they review were translated into Dutch in the screenshots or if it's just a translation of the magazine uh, with the same assets. I bet it's the same assets. That's my guess. The same photographs. And stuff yeah, and probably. But it looks. But uh, looking at the names and everything, it looks like that they were reviewed by their own uh, Dutch staff and everything. That's oh. excellent. Oh, so it's actually fresh yeah. content. Cool. They, also, they also came with CDs, apparently, but the issues I have never came with them, so I can't really talk about those unfortunately yeah that's right they uh the, you just reminded me this very second that it did come with cds it came with a floppy before then actually and you had the choice either through subscription or on the newsstand whether you wanted to buy the magazine with or without the cd and it was like two bucks cheaper if you didn't oh, care really? about the disc oh that's yeah funny. it actually think... mentions at the bottom of the uh of the front cover no cds and go ads get the cash register register oh that's, oh, that's right I think that's, yeah, I think they must have had a problem with people stealing the, uh, the demo discs or something, so they had to indicate right on the cover which of the editions you were supposed to have been buying. Geez, that's hilarious. I remember um, PC Gamer was really special because um, they would wrap their, their ma- it was the only magazine I knew of that wrapped the whole thing in plastic um, so that you would uh, yeah. get a pristine copy that had the CD inside every time. And uh, Well, that's an optimistic way to put it. It's, <laughs> that's what kept me from leafing through it in the store, which pissed me off. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember PC Gamer, um, throughout its course, was famous for having a really good cover disc. They would, for instance, I think it might be the only magazine, somebody please correct me, that included commercial, full registered versions of games, too. Um, oh, they did that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. randomly. Um, there was a, there's one particular issue, it's a famous issue, that has Ultima 4 on it. Um, it's, it's a kind of the free version of Ultima 4. Um, that, and, and that ha- that was out there for years. There's one version I believe that has actually uh, a full version of Betrayal at Condor, um, which is kind of unbelievable. 
Um, because oh, that's, that's right. They actually released that game for free for a short while online, yeah. even Sierra, yeah, and then they exactly. changed their mind about it or something. That's right. They changed their weird. mind and took it back mm-hmm. offline. And I remember it was in PC Gamer for a while. Um, there was oh man, there were there were these great full versions of games that had you know were fairly old by that point, but they were still you know amazingly uh, you know uh, amazingly playable. And Trondor was one of the yeah was the big one. Yeah. That actually reminds me of some other magazine. I don't know which one it was. I'm sure it wasn't PC Gamer, but some magazine came with two CDs. One was the demo disc, and the other disc was a full commercial version of a game, which You're you could play kidding. a demo of, or you could purchase it by phone to Holy get the crap. registered key, and then you already had the disc in your possession, which is a really That's interesting brilliant. concept, actually. Wow. Yep. I don't remember what the but, game was. Uh, P- <clears throat> PC Action also... <clears throat> PC Action also came with uh, full versions uh, in certain issues of older games. Oh, really? Yeah, I actually got, uh, with one issue came full versions of, uh, what was it, Star Crusader, an old uh, space, okay. uh, space combat sim, and Millennia Altered Destinies, which was kind of a weird time travel strategy game. Gotcha. And another issue cool. came with the full version of Die by the Sword, which I still have. Which uh, oh, a full yeah. version, yeah. really? Yeah. Wow. The other two games yeah, I mentioned were full that's versions, an too. That's game that nobody talks about anymore. That was a cool game. It had the craziest physics engine. It was mm, very silly. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I didn't get... For... It was kind of like a third-person trespasser. It was <laughs> yeah, crazy exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't get very far into the, the kind of the story mode, but I played a lot of the uh, the battle arena in that game, just uh, chopping, yeah, up, just chopping up enemies uh, one-on-one. Yeah, chopping the limbs off and stuff. It was very funny to watch. <laughs> yeah, Early and I actually remember that game came with a uh, rolling demo for the upcoming Star Trek Secret of Vulcan Fury, which... Uh, really? Yeah. And it's a crying shame that that game got cancelled because it looked so fucking good, and they had all the original cast members uh, for it as well. Wow. Oh, that's really cool. Well, gentlemen, we are coming up on the three-hour point... Uh... Do we have any uh, closing stories for our our exploration of the magazine era? Well, I mentioned all of the main ones that uh, were near and dear to me. I actually have like another four magazines that I could talk superficially about, but I won't bother. Um, uh, just that the the medium of magazines has always been super important to me, and I still subscribe to PC Gamer, and that I think the quality of the writing more than makes up for you know how old the news happens to be by the time it's published right. but they have managed to stay relevant for decades and i recommend them to anybody it's something like i don't know it's like 20 bucks for a 12 month subscription and it's Jeez. often on sale around holiday time so i can't recommend them enough they're on like the itunes store and the wow. google store and some other ones too so do check them out cool. well i've kind of made the switch to uh, just getting my information from the internet since then because after software hits folded i actually followed another magazine called power unlimited for a while which is still going today which is more of a generalized uh magazine that covers every system so pc and okay. nintendo and sega and microsoft every uh, etc mm-hmm. and it's more of the kind of the young and hip and edgy kind of magazine and you know that doesn't do it for yeah. me. Yeah, you know, it it was still informative, but after a while, I realized, you know, I can get, you know, they were kind of lagging behind uh, with with uh, how fast information gets released in the internet, and the humor didn't do it for me anymore. So I just canceled my subscription to that. Yeah, that's important. Have you guys, by the way, checked out Retro Gamer magazine? Yeah, uh, no, but I hear a lot of good things about it. 
Yeah, it's okay. I, I've been... I mean, it's a very good magazine, but they review like every system that ever was, pretty much. Yep. And I just have no nostalgia and no connection with most of this stuff, so yeah. it kind of goes over my head. It's very, but it's very well made. It's very it's rare to yeah. It's 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 a you you Europe UK centric uh, magazine, so it tends to have a lot yeah. of stuff on the ZX spectrum, um, which I appreciate because it's a, that's an interesting system, even though I never owned one. Um, the one thing Retro Gamer does really well, though is regardless of its... I think its game reviews and stuff are really lame um, um, for the most part. Um, there's no real attempt at detail, but mm-hmm. it's very visually beautiful. Um, the layout's incredible. Very beautiful layout. Yeah. Incredible, yes. And the other thing it has that very few, very few other places have going for it is they have these great in-depth interviews with uh, obscure, obscure software developers that, um, you know... I, I totally cherish, and they're, they're just a great way. I mean, for instance, they're the only person, or one of the only people I know, for instance, that have an interview with um, the guy who created Transport Tycoon and, uh, um, uh, shoot, um, what's the name? The Transport Tycoon guy and... Um, and Chris Sawyer. Another game. Yeah, t- exactly. Chris Sawyer. Sawyer. Yeah, Ben was talking about him. Yeah, yeah he's kind of famously uh, reclusive, and... Um, Sawyer has a great two-page article in there. He talks about in, in, in intricate detail making Transport Tycoon and uh, and mm. Roller Coaster Tycoon, I think. And um, ah. and it's just it's just an amazing book. It, so it's it's expensive. It's sixteen or seventeen dollars an issue. But um, you know, for those moments where it has a brilliant interview, um, it has a, had a ten-page thing on Planescape Torment once, which was amazing. Um, it's it's worth it for those those long articles you'll never see published anywhere else. It's true. It's definitely a premium price. Even the subscriptions are about fifty dollars. They are, Canadian yeah, or, I, or more. Even, more, which is I think it's like two or three times more than most other magazines. Exactly. I think it's like fifty bucks plus shipping, which comes out to around seventy-five to a hundred. It's it's very very. Oh expensive. yeah, the printed one is expensive. Sure. If only it were cheaper, I would take a chance on it. But <laughs> it's just so often that it doesn't strike a chord with me that I, I kind of avoid it. Uh, well, maybe what I'll do, Brian, is I'll, I'll I'll mail you a big package of my back issues of Retro Gamer. You can thumb through them. They're pretty timeless. Oh gosh, you're too kind. <laughs> oh man. So do we have any other any other final thoughts to say about magazines in general? Um I'm finished. <laughs> well All the, right. the ones that I've talked about, at- yeah, they have a lot of nostalgic value for me, even if I've come to kinda realize that there wasn't a lot of uh value in their reviews, I suppose. At least uh software hits. The they tended to praise games a bit too much based on their technical aspects. Like they really loved the new and exciting technology like CD-ROM and 3D, and they didn't really pay much attention if the gameplay was crap or not, I suppose. Right. Oh, yeah. I guess those are things that are more important at the time. Yeah. But in retrospect, then they become really superficial. But, you know, I I still love them, and I really cherish my collection nonetheless. That's fantastic. That's good. All right. Well, why don't we hold it at that then, ending on the, on the high nostalgic note. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Akago, we want to thank you ever so much for joining us. Yes. It was a real pleasure to have thank you, you here. Thank you so much. We appreciate your uh, your take on uh, the uh, overseas side of magazines. That was really interesting new stuff. So thank you very, very much for joining us. Oh, you're us. very welcome. It was a lot of fun to be here, even if uh, okay. even if we didn't really get a chance to talk about the other topic, which I was kind of looking forward to, but... Oh, well. 
Oh, that's right. Well, we will. We would love to have you back sometime Absolutely. if uh, you can tolerate our. If you can tolerate our. our I would most <laughs> certainly appreciate it. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. All right. And uh, to our listeners, thank you all very much for uh, for listening, of course, and for uh, writing to us. And uh, no voicemail this week, but we do love to get your voicemails, your, your letters, anything you have to say to us. We'd, be lo- we'd love to uh, address it on the air. So you can reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com, by email, squarefm at demodulated.com. And on Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. Yes, and so, we love you all as always. Um, and we can't wait to hear from you or possibly you hear from us in the next week. And mm. could I possibly tell the people where they could find me as well? Oh, please do. Anything you'd like to plug <laughs> or to okay. mention. Uh, okay, again. so I can be found on Twitter at Amiyurit Akago. That's A-M-A-Y-I-R-O-T-A-K-A-G-O. Uh, Tumblr, amiyuridakago.tumblr.com. I have my own YouTube channel where I do video game reviews and other things that I feel like doing, uh, which is also under that name. I have a blog where I uh, semi-frequently write about games that I've uh, recently finished and give my uh, thoughts on them, whether I like them or not. That's akagos100gameoath.wordpress.com. Great. And that pretty much wraps it up, so... Oh, and I will totally, uh, I will totally vouch for the excellence of both your YouTube channel, which has a lot of stuff I've enjoyed. I really liked your, uh, I think it was Dreamweb that I watched last. Oh yeah, that was that oh. was a really enjoyable one. And also, of course, your blog with 100 playing 100 games and your thoughts about those. I really, really enjoy those. So we will most certainly be sticking those in the show notes, and those those get my whole heart. Oh, thanks very yeah, much. Second thumbs up for the blog too. I I went through that a couple of years ago when you were in the midst of your. Your big playthrough is trying to catch up to your backlog, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's hard work. Good for you for sticking to that for so long. That's really <laughs> Yeah, working. but uh, since I finished it, I've kind of fallen back into my old habit, I'm sorry to say. Oh, it's too easy. Well, maybe in a couple of years you'll have another 100 <laughs> games to about. We'll see. All right. All right. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. We love you to bits, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you the same time next week. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, next week. Thanks again for having me. It was a hell of a lot of fun, and I'll keep listening to the show uh, as I have been for the past uh, few months. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Thanks Thank a you lot, so much. Thank you, too. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Well, I can't take a step. I can't make a move. I can't sing a song. I can't sing a song. It's a minimal I can't get away from the singular fact I can't take a breath without seeing Mr. Death I can't take a bath Mr. Death is washing my back I can't do the disco Mr. Death will dance on my foot I can't sing the rest Well, I can't take a breath Without seeing Mr. Death But I can't see Mr. Death If I don't take that breath
and my car keys. Better ask Mr. Death, and I get so lonely. They have a game of chess. I can't take a breath. I can't take a breath. I can't take a breath. I can't take a breath without seeing Mr. Death.